Hello, listeners, and welcome to Do We Like Murder, a segment of the Long Overdue Podcast, a production of the Decatur Public Library. We've got our regulars with us today, Denise and Dawn, and also we have Pat joining us this time to discuss a murder as well. So let's just start by saying this is not Pat's forte. She does not read the genre. It is not. This one just sounded really interesting. And I have to say it was kind of interesting, but I won't be joining you again probably. (laughs) I'll just just throw that out there right now. Which is really interesting because Mm -hmm. the last book that Denise read, you had already read for book club. Isn't that right? The flower yes, Killers, Killers of the, of the Flower Moon. Mm-hmm. I had. It was not my favorite. But you read it. I did read it. <laughs> I do <laughs> on occasion. So if, there may be a time when you're reading it for book club and you think, oh, I have to talk okay. about this. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Okay. I, it never occurred to me that that was about true crime. All the murders. It was about the FBI. <laughs> And flowers. She, she missed no, all the murders. No, no, no. I, I'm not <laughs> saying I missed the murders at all. But to me, the murders were not what it was about. It was about inherent racism. It was about corrupt judicial system and law enforcement. And it was about the beginning of the FBI. So it when you said this is what you were doing, I thought, oh, my gosh. I guess, I guess that would fit. But it's not just about a murder. <laughs> It's about so much more. So I guess part of it opened my eyes to the possibility of what could fit here. I really think my book fits that a lot. Yeah? As far as the corrupt judicial system Mm. or questionable. And I think my last book, I talked about that. (laughs) (laughs) So honestly, I think I mentioned uh, during our last episode... The book I read, um, um, that's what I like the best about these is not, I don't, you know, I mean, I don't want to read a, a thing that's just about the murder and that's it. I like how they are kind of a, a jumping off point to address different mm-hmm. things and inform you of, you know, mm-hmm. various different subjects and such. So mm-hmm. it brings your attention so to I a lot of things. So I agree with that. It yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's true. So mm-hmm. it's not like it's, you know, some fiction thing that somebody made up about the judicial mm-hmm. system. It's like this stuff has happened. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what my thing is, too, that I'm realizing, and, mm-hmm. you know, I knew this, but when you're reading it, you really start to understand that there's more than one viewpoint. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard to be unbiased mm-hmm. once you start getting going down one mm. line of thought mm-hmm. I think it's kind of yeah. yeah it's interesting yeah so I think all three of our books have to do with children who kill what how yeah. do we do this yeah we get such <laughs> similar books yeah. that's really interesting because I know mm-hmm. mine's about two teen girls mm-hmm. and mine is about two teen girls as well and mine is about two teen boys. Hmm. They were very young teens when mm-hmm. it happened. Uh, wow. But one of them was 12. Hmm. Very okay. interesting. Hmm. Should we jump in? Yeah. 
Take it away, Dawn. All right. Take so it away. my book is actually probably very, um, everybody probably knows about it. It's well known because it was very uh, publicized. Um, the press, the media, 48 hours, court mm, TV. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a big deal. So the book I read was A Perversion of Justice, A Southern Tragedy of Murder, Lies, and Innocence Betrayed. And it was written by Catherine Medico and Molly Barrows. Um, so hmm. here's what happened. Okay. So it was very confusing, I guess. You know, I'm going to set the stage about the family and all that. Um, too many people with the same name in this book. <laughs> um, the father's names, I think there were two Jimmies, and yeah, I, it was very confusing for me. So I kind of almost had to write it down. It's like, okay, where's Southern, the family yeah. tree? Jimmy yeah, John and Jimmy Joe. Or <laughs> yes. Jimmy, uh, Jimmy John Jr. Yeah. and Jimmy John Sr. <laughs> well, they had a jimmy that was married to one person and then they got divorced and and then she remarried another jimmy and mm. i don't know it was keeping weird. things simple right wow. <laughs> <laughs> okay so it comes down to the fact that there's terry young 20s meets janet okay and um while he was visiting his um his dad. So they had a normal life. Terry's family did, um, has a brother and a sister. Um, parents were, um, in the church, um, a lot and seemed to have a very stable family life. Um, mom and dad got divorced when he was 18, Hmm. but, uh, you know, the other two were out of the house. He was the youngest. So anyway, he marries or meets and marries Janet and they have two boys, uh, Derek and Alex, who are the the two boys in this book. And they're struggling to make ends meet. So, oh, this is so ridiculous. They see an ad in the newspaper mm-hmm. uh, for her to be a stripper because she can make $1,000 a week. So, wow. they agree. This is a, the solution to our money problems. Oh, <sighs> Okay, so right before this, she was starting to spend time away from home, started to be Mm -hmm. hours, and then it was days, and next thing you know, she's pregnant, and she has twins. They are not Terry's, but Mm -hmm. she doesn't tell him that, and so anyway, she starts doing this stripping, sorry, exotic dancing. Right. And... (laughs) Let's get our terminology correct. Right. Uh, and she only makes about two to three hundred dollars a week or something like that. I don't know. It was not. Boo. Yeah, right. Wow. Uh, but she decides. It was not as advertised. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> um, she she ends up dating, though, like the owner of the place or manager or something. So she's not coming home again because he doesn't want the kids around. She mm-hmm. initially takes the twins with her. To the exotic dance club? Where, well, not... What? So she's working they, nights. So she's with them during the day. I don't know. It was so confusing. <laughs> she would actually come home and stay with the kids with Terry. 
uh, during the day mm-hmm. while he could work. And then she would go and dance at night. Well, then she started dating this guy and she wasn't coming home. So he couldn't work. This, mm-hmm. uh, her husband couldn't work. Uh, and she wasn't sending money. Chris is like, what is going on? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, long story short, the kids end up going with grandparents. Um, Derek goes with Jimmy and Linda Walker, who, uh, Linda is Janet's mom and Alex goes with Jimmy and Lisa French, who is Janet's dad. Okay. That's just the start of it. They start going, I mean, they end up not staying there very long. Mm -hmm. Um, They go into a group home because Terry doesn't think that he doesn't like the influence Jimmy Walker is having Mm. on um, the son because he does drink and I don't know if he smokes around the kids, probably cusses a little bit and he doesn't want him around that Mm. redneck mentality. So he would prefer to send him to foster care? Yeah. They ended up sending him to a group home. And he, yeah, he preferred that. He did not want them to have anything to do with it, even though Derek was just so sad and cried Mm -hmm. and they were sad. The grandparents were, I mean, they really wanted to keep him. So what age were these boys when they were pulled out of the grandparents' home? They were really young. I mean, like under five. Oh, wow. I think. Hmm. Um, So... Alex ends up going back to stay with his dad, living with his dad. And Derek ends up in a foster family. So he is living with them for about seven years. And then he starts getting in trouble at school. And they say that he could actually, if he was on medication and all that, that he would probably be okay. He has ADHD and all that. Mm-hmm. Um but they don't, because it's foster and private foster, they didn't have the money mm. to, to give him the medication that he needs. Wow. So he was experimenting with fire and different things, and they were just concerned that their kids, when they would bring their grandkids over, mm-hmm. that that could be an issue. Mm-hmm. They were kind of fearful of that. So they sent him back. They, After seven years, they sent him back mm. to his dad. Yeah, that was so. The book portrays them as being, it was, they all really did that for the image because he was a high school principal in the area. Mm. And it, they really just adopted to say, look at me. We're oh, doing wow. good in the community. Mm-hmm. Look, look how wonderful people we are. Look how yeah, great we are. Exactly. But then when it starts to get difficult, they're like, okay, this is, uh-huh. had enough of this. So Terry and Alex are having an okay time. They're living together. They seem happy. Uh, Everything is good. And um, Alex is getting to be about 12 years old. And uh, Terry's grandmother thinks that he should be in counseling because they really want their mom and dad to get back together. Both Derek and Alex do. They just can't let go of the fact that that's not going to happen. So Terry, sorry, excuse me, Alex 
is trying to tell Terry, also, you need to start dating. And Terry says, well, not until I get my transportation fixed. Well, he doesn't have the money to fix anything. I mean, he's trying to support the kids and all that. And so he has a friend, and his name is Ricky Chavez. And Ricky allows him to come to his workshop to fix his car. Mm -hmm. No big deal. He two-year relationship, you know, friendship, Mm -hmm. and he sometimes spends the night over there. Alex goes over there. Well, it wasn't too long after that that the grandmother started noticing that Alex was very withdrawn and was very quiet, and she actually saw some marks on his neck that she thought were hickeys. Mm. But he didn't, he couldn't explain them to her. Mm -hmm. He wasn't concerned about it, he said. My gosh. So anyway, they, you know, this goes on. I mean, hello, red flags. Mm-hmm. And Derek gets sent back home. So within a month of them coming back home, or less than that, the lights get shut off at Terry's house. Mm-hmm. Ricky says, come over and stay with us. Bring the boys over until you get the money to turn your electricity back on. Great, he now has the boys in house mm-hmm. 24-7. They enroll the kids in school and they uh he Terry allows Ricky to be on the pickup list. Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm. approves that. Well, they're sitting at the house one night and Terry doesn't even yell at Alex. The, I guess the video game was too loud or something Mm -hmm. so he just said his name loud Mm -hmm. to get his attention and you know Mm -hmm. and he just looked at him so ricky has been manipulating the kids into believing that their father is abusive he doesn't hit them so he says that he stares at them and that's abusive Oh my goodness. And they're believing this stuff. And mm-hmm. so they, they're just, you know, all sucked into the fact that their dad is manli- manipulating them. Uh, Ricky actually comes to the point and tells Alex that Terry is not his real dad, that, um, but Derek is. And so he likes Derek more, but that's not true. He was his biological child. Mm-hmm. But now Alex is thinking, okay, Terry's not my dad. And so he starts calling him Terry. And, and but, but I thought Terry wasn't either one of their Oh, yes. He's their dad, dad, but not the twins. This was the, the twins have kind of sat aside. They're really not a part Sorry. of the rest of okay, the story. Yes. So there's They're really four. Lost. They're with the, the mom and this. Yes. Not really a part of, of this this family. Okay. Yes. I thought these were the twins. No. All right. No. I'm better now. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> and he was actually taking care of the twins for a while because she wouldn't. Okay. But, and I've, honestly, I don't know where they ended up. Okay. I didn't really go down that path. <laughs> I kind of was wondering towards, you know, uh-huh. at the end, but uh-huh. yeah, you get. They just sort of got dropped out of the story. Yes. And okay. they, they, it's probably a good thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Eventually. So Terry raises his voice to Alex. Well, Ricky doesn't like that. And he fumes, and he finally gets up, and he leaves. And he drives around, he comes back, he gets his other car, and drives around some more. (laughs) Comes back, and confronts Terry about the way that he yelled at his own child. 
and was disciplining him and telling him how to parent. (laughs) And Terry's like, "Uh, this is not right. Mm -hmm. Something is not right here. (sighs) This might be a good time to say, Ricky has a past. Mm. If you didn't know already, he was very into teens coming over and he had molested in the past and so he is now fixated on Alex mm-hmm. and so the next day Terry goes and, and gets a loan from a friend turns his electricity back on and they move back home mm-hmm. he also takes his boys to school and says they will ride the bus home they are not to be picked they will not be picked up anymore mm-hmm. well he didn't take Ricky off the list mm-hmm. so Ricky goes and picks him up and he's at home or he's with them alone and he's, you know, just manipulating more. Um, he finally convinces the boys to run away and he hides them. Mm. Terry is frantic trying to find his boys and he bro- goes over to this guy's house mm-hmm. and says, Do you know where my boys are? And he's like, No, are they not at home? Didn't they come home from school? He had them hidden in his house. They were like feet mm. from from them. And so anyway, they're gone for a week. It turns out that they finally, long story, but they get back together, um, come home. And that night, Ricky had an opportunity to be alone with them again and said, uh, I'll be there at midnight. Make sure you unlock the door and we'll get you out of there. Mm. So the boys go home. Alex unlocks the door. Um, they went out into the Ricky's car when he got there and hid in the trunk. And then a while later, Ricky comes out and said that um, he had to kill his, kill their dad. And so he took them back to his house. And then the next day, he turned them over to the police. When I say they turned him over to the police, he had a friend, Ricky did, that was in a, a sheriff's deputy. And so he called him, and then he took them to the to the station, the sheriff's office. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so much that I'm not even saying. I mean, it's, this book is just so full of so many little things. It's ridiculous. Um, so the rest of the book is about, you know, obviously what happened after. And so the detectives get to the scene uh, because the house is on fire also. Uh, the firefighters come, detectives come, and, oh, Ricky's there. And he starts asking all these questions, like inappropriate questions. Like, um, where are the boys? Are the boys in there? Or, you know, just all concerned about this mm-hmm. and that. And um, Is is that going to burn up so that there's no evidence? I mean, I mean, it was just kind of like creepy kind of questions yeah. that he was asking that... <laughs> So you're awfully concerned about yeah. evidence. Yes. <laughs> right. And so the officer or the, the detective kind of thinks this is strange. But anyway, he doesn't, you know, pursue it. And the next day, the boys come in. They give a confession. And they confess to um, hitting their dad with a bat. Because it looked like when he was in his chair that he was just like watching TV. He actually had a full cup of coffee on his lap. But they said that they'd hit him 10 times in the head. But when the examiner looked at him and for the autopsy, it said that he'd only been hit three times unless they hit exactly the same spot more than that. I mean, like, what uh-huh. are the odds? Yeah. Right? yeah. And then they they'd talked about it one time where the lamp was 
And it's like, okay, if you swung the bat, Mm -hmm. it could have made that on the head. Mm -hmm. But the lamp was in the way. So the lamp would not have been there. Mm -hmm. You would have hit the lamp. So they were trying to talk about the angle from which the Mm -hmm. blows would come more from above. And still, that was... No indication, no clues coming out of this. So the boys go to trial and Ricky goes to trial because the boys eventually come out and say, Ricky told us that we should do it, uh, that that we should take the blame because at most Mm. we'll get three weeks in jail. But then um, because we were abused, um, we won't get, Mm -hmm. it'll be like self-defense. And prior to this, Ricky had called the grandmother and said, I'm really concerned about the boys because they're being abused and their their dad's doing this and that. And he contacted several people and would, he's like working it the whole mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. And so they tried Ricky first and then they tried the boys for the same murder a week apart. So, if Ricky says he does it, okay. So, so here's what here's what they did. They try Ricky. He has a jury of six. They seal the verdict. So they don't want to influence the boys' trial. Hmm. So we don't know if he was found guilty or not. Then they're going to try the boys and find out if they're guilty. Hmm. Yeah, it was just, it was weird. Okay, so Ricky goes first. The prosecutor did not believe Ricky did it. Oh, my goodness. He was very blatant about not asking good questions. Mm. He did not object to the defense and some of the questioning angles that he took. Uh, The boys, uh, Alex's lawyer was in the audience watching the Mm -hmm. trial he actually stood up and adge- objected at one oh point. Oh, my goodness. And he's like, you're not trying this case. <laughs> the judge said that. But, I mean, it worked out. But they didn't, he just didn't object. I mean, it was just so obvious that he wasn't, hmm. he thought this guy was innocent. And that the boys did it because they had come in and they had confessed and then they changed their story. Mm-hmm. So Rick or Alex actually came in and testified during that. And he was so mean in his questioning and mm. his his tone of voice and everything to Alex. Wow. And so then the next week, he's the prosecutor for this case. So he's prosecuting the boys now, mm-hmm. and he is all over it. Um, the boys end up getting a... Um, being convicted they were guilty of murder in the third degree and arson the interesting thing about the arson was the accelerant that was found on their shoes was not the same accelerant that they found in the house Mm -hmm. and if they had been there they would have had burns Mm -hmm. but they still found them guilty so the boys had a, had a jury of 12, and they, they convicted him. Then the, uh, they unsealed the verdict for Ricky, and he's not guilty. 
Mm. Not guilty of murder, not guilty of arson. public outrage saying these boys had already been in jail for over probably six seven months Mm -hmm. goodness adult jail Mm. oh wow not juvenile they were being tried as adults yes they were 12 year olds Mm -hmm. yes (sighs) so you know uproar about everything um rosie o'donnell actually pays for some lawyers to come in mm. and uh you know there was a just all kinds of things coming into this the boys finally get not really a retrial the the verdict was thrown out and they had they went to mediation and the uh when they came out of that the prosecutor still adamantly thinking that these boys are guilty says you have to confess to the murder and then you will get less time i guess Mm -hmm. so they ended up writing their own confessions and then um, alex got seven years and Derek got eight years but they ended up getting juvenile prison instead of adult Mm -hmm. i mean think about that and a child in an adult prison. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh my god! Really? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So, Ricky, on the other hand, has another trial coming up for lewd and lavicious. Is that the word? Behavior or whatever? Let's see. What is his second trial? Actually, kidnapping and molesting Alex. Basically, he was found again not guilty. Oh my goodness! Right. I mean, and I didn't even tell you all the other convincing evidence that I feel like he is just so guilty. Oh. Um, but he was found guilty of a lesser charge of false imprisonment because he held them without mm-hmm. the dad knowing. And so he received a maximum of five years. Mm-hmm. He had another trial where he was convicted or he was uh, tried for accessory after the fact to first degree murder and tampering with evidence because they were trying to say, okay, he just helped them. It was all their idea Mm -hmm. and all this. And Mm -hmm. then, you know, I'm going to come in and what happened is he washed their clothes and he did some other things. Yeah. Took them away from the scene. Yes. Hide. Mm -hmm. Yes. Destroyed evidence by washing their clothes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the interesting thing about the whole clothes thing is they, they tested the boys shoes for Mm -hmm. the, um, accelerant and different things they did not test ricky's oh my goodness they also did not it sounds that because he had that friend in the sheriff's office that that had a lot Mm. to do with why they didn't actually collect evidence and things were being uh, information was being fed to him Mm -hmm. i mean through that he was very good at talking with people and and even Mm -hmm. like in the trials the the court uh security and all that he would you know be talking Mm. with them and yeah so very possible Mm. uh so he was again tried for for that and he was actually found guilty on both counts he had a different judge this time Mm-hmm. And the judge was a no nonsense judge, and he's like, "You're, you know." They asked for the maximum penalty, and he gave it to him. He didn't even deliberate for five minutes. Mm-hmm. He said, "That's what you're getting," which was only thirty five years. 
Wow. So he's still serving that. And I, I read that 2028 is when he will be released. Mm. So where did this happen? This is in Florida near Pensacola. Okay. And uh, it was 2003 when the trials took place. Mm-hmm. So it was a little bit before that. And um, it was all like on court TV and all that stuff. So if you're interested in finding mm-hmm. out more about it, you can. I was actually watching news clips of mm-hmm. the testimonies this afternoon. Uh, the boys, Alex, was on the, the stand. Wow. Um, yeah. So just a little bit of information and then I'll tell you where the boys are now. So after the convictions, you know, the boys went to prison and Ricky did also their mom who was just a little bit, I told you was not a really good mom and Mm -hmm. she was in and out of the picture and then blah, blah, blah. She was in jail in Kentucky because she gave false information to the social social security administration to get survivor benefits checks. So always working those angles. <laughs> right. <laughs> I can make a thousand dollars as an exotic dancer. Thousand dollars a week. Yes. Well, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Alex's attorney was killed in an ultralight aircraft accident uh, along with his best friend. Hmm. Wow. And one of the um, attorneys for Derek uh, committed suicide. He suffered from depression, and so I don't know if any of that had to do with this mm. case or not, but yeah, he committed suicide. So bo- both boys are now free, and Alex in 2016 was living in West Texas. They hmm. this, they had bought this ranch, this guy that had started communicating with him and uh, had was kind of like a father figure to him, bought this ranch, and he wanted it to be a place for kids who had uh, killed their parents because there's, there's actually a name for that. And typically they are not uh, harmful to society or a threat mm-hmm. to society because they've fixed their problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, wow. Yeah. So they have this ranch out there that is for these these people. And so Alex was living out there because he did not really care to be around people. He mm-hmm. was more of an introvert. Mm-hmm. And, but Derek, he was not. He's uh, very talkative and needs to social, needs to be around people. So he only stayed there for six months and then he left. But I, I believe both of the boys now are in Florida and Alex was in college and doing doing well in school. Mm-hmm. And Derek um, was in college as well. I don't think they had graduated yet. Mm. But they're in their late 20s. Mm. Okay. Wow. So, yes, it was just so fascinating. Mm. But you know what I'm talking about? About the whole judicial system mm-hmm. and about like the prosecutor, the way that Absolutely. he was... How he, can they? he had already decided before they ever set mm-hmm. foot in mm-hmm. a courtroom yes. who was guilty and who was not. Yes. Wow. And they tried to get it so that he couldn't try both cases, uh, yeah. prosecute both cases, mm-hmm. and they let him anyway. Yep. Yeah. Wow. That's that's crazy. That shouldn't have been allowed. Yeah. And and also there's the fact that 
the way they treated these boys, being as young as they were and being tried as adults and being in adult prison. And mm-hmm. that's crazy. Yeah. And I, I did read that our country is doing that more. Actually. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, yeah. Like, I think every state has laws where there's a minimum age and it's like yeah. 12 or 13 or something like that. Depending I, on the crime. I, think I read recently that there was a child who was like 10 years old mm-hmm. and the prosecution or the county attorney or whoever was was petitioning the court to allow them mm-hmm. to to charge that child as an adult, adult prison, all that, mm-hmm. because of the situation and because of what they had done. Because of the severity yeah. of the crime. Yeah. So... And I can, I, I think I can understand that like on a case by case basis, mm-hmm. Yeah. but this is where it's really hard because you read this information and it's biased on the side of, you know, Ricky manipulated those boys mm-hmm. and if they did it, which I don't think they did, I think that Ricky did it, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if the boys did it, they were told to do it and yeah. it's not like somebody who just goes out and just commits a murder just and does snaps that. and does mm-hmm. yeah. yeah and and is or or plans mm-hmm. it you know mm-hmm. and so Ricky was a known sex offender yes like, and that kind of thing takes grooming yes so absolutely they were being manipulated not just to commit murder but to let Ricky do other things to them mm-hmm. oh yes and so the fact that that was just sort of ignored. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. It sounds like that was not even... Yeah. Yeah, they just brushed over it. I mean, they wow. would they would say certain things, and they actually had one of his previous... Um, Victims. Thank you. Come in and testify, and the prosecutor did not even ask him about what happened. The, he was so afraid to even come in and testify about bringing it all up mm-hmm. and being embarrassed about talking about it and feeling mm-hmm. guilty about, mm-hmm. about everything. Yeah. yeah. And so then he gets up on the stand and, I mean, just, did you know him? Yes. Uh, did, I don't know, he may have asked. I don't even know if he asked anything about that. Hmm. And the guy's like, what? Mm-hmm. you're not going to ask me? I mean, he was ready to tell all kinds of stuff, and the prosecutor didn't even ask. It's ridiculous. Mm. Wow. So there's pictures in this book, if you want to look through. And there is Ricky. Yeah, it's just a master manipulator, mm. which is really scary when you think about mm-hmm. our children mm-hmm. and how gullible, you know. Ricky Chavez met Officer Reggie Jernigan in 1980 when Chavez was incarcerated in Escambia County Jail and struck up a friendship that would last more than two decades. Oh, my goodness gracious. Mm-hmm. He actually was an informant for the police uh, after he got out. Because okay, that of this makes relationship. a little more sense of why they were very willing to, mm. oh, you're molesting boys? Well, we'll just look over here. Yeah. Oh, you committed a murder? Oh, wow. we'll just look over here. Wow. And interestingly enough, uh, one of the authors, Molly um, Barrows, was a uh, reporter and 
she started going to see Ricky in jail to see if she could get more information mm-hmm. because they had sealed records and were not letting anybody talk about it. And so she's going and, and able that to visit with him. That is suspicious. That they sealed the records? Uh-huh. Well, it was because the attorneys on the defense side for the boys were saying things about Ricky and and they were like, yeah, we you're saying things that can't be used now in trial because it's been publicized. I don't remember exactly, but that's why they said they did that. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, he told her that he knew that he would not be convicted of murder and one of the other charges. He's like that. He just kind of knew that that was taken care of, and she was really taken aback by the mm-hmm. fact that, okay, you know that? Yeah. Mm. But he didn't know about these other things. And so he was worried. It's just ridiculous. Yeah, oh man. So yeah, for him not to be to have been worried is that he they'd already communicated with him that Mm -hmm. they were going to do whatever they could to make sure that he was all right. Yeah, and that's just sad. It's sad for those boys. So there was never any definitive decision on on who actually did it then. Like no. the boys well, remain convicted of, of well, according it. to the record, because they pleaded guilty and wrote out their confessions. As far as the court is concerned, they're the ones they're that the committed ones that the, co- the crime. Yeah, and they can't say that they didn't now, mm-hmm. even that they're out, mm-hmm. because they would have been committing perjury. Mm. And well, from, they've already served time. <laughs> I mean, but from the way that they they point. were treated. Oh. From the get go, well, uh-huh. yeah. Why would they? Why would they risk risk, risk it? Anything? Yeah, because yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, if that's how they were treated from the beginning, mm-hmm. and they could charge them with perjury, especially if they felt like they got away with something. Hmm. Wow. So I don't know what y'all have heard about it, but it was it was not what I guess I was expecting. Hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I didn't know anything about it. You didn't. Well, sorry. Yeah, no, it's fine. But for this to have happened in early 2000s, I mean, mm-hmm. that really wasn't that long ago. I got off of my 80s kick, mm. my 80s murders. <laughs> but, uh, right? <laughs> Not saying I won't go back, mm-hmm. but. <laughs> 80s music, 80s murders. Yeah. Right. I mean, 80s was a crazy that time. 80s nostalgia. It's every t- <laughs> crazy, crazy time. <laughs> mm. Man. Anyway, so that's my kiddos, mm-hmm. and they're out and about. Derek wants a family. Wow. Good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sounds like they were railroaded. Yeah. Yeah. Which Man. if they had not met Ricky Chavez, uh-huh. Terry would still be alive. Well, and to side with a pedophile. Right. Yeah. To, to be a prosecutor or in any kind of law enforcement and to side with the pedophile. It's like, really? Mm-hmm. If it had been other adults involved in this, yeah, you could give him the benefit of the doubt or whatever, but since it was kids involved mm-hmm. in that, that should have been obvious. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And he was a known mm-hmm. pedophile. It wasn't like, oh, Ricky? No, not Ricky. 
I was like, oh, Ricky, well. We know about yeah, Ricky. Yeah, we know about Ricky. But Ricky occasionally helps us out with mm-hmm. information, so. Mm-hmm. And this was such a sensational case and being on, you know, they were allowing it to be recorded and everything. Uh, Alex had to testify about mm-hmm. the personal intimate details of things that happened. Mm-hmm. And that's why they finally um, overturned the verdict and, and did the mediation mm-hmm. so that he would not have to do that again. Mm-hmm. But then they had him testify in one of Ricky's trials, and it was just, it was ridiculous wow. what they did. Hmm. All right, who's next? I think you should go next because we'll go back in time and then further back <laughs> in time. <laughs> How's that? Sounds fine. Okay. Sounds good to me. So, I have mentioned before about my deep fascination about Anne Perry mm-hmm. being a murderer. Ooh. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, on our Overdrive ebook catalog, we have a book called Anne Perry and the Murder of the Century <laughs> by Peter Graham. Mm-hmm. And I chose to read that because Anne Perry. Okay, mm-hmm. so let's just get this straight. Anne Perry is a known author. Murder mystery. Murder mystery <laughs> author. And she's Novel popular. Fiction, uh-huh. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, she so is very popular. She's a best-selling author. Mm-hmm. But in 1954, Anne Perry was known as Juliet Holmey. Okay. I'm not sure how you pronounce her last name. I'll just call her Juliet. And she and her best friend Pauline... Mm-hmm. Bludgeoned to death, Pauline's mother. <gasps> Pauline's mother. Mm-hmm. Oh, not okay. Juliet's mother. Okay, but Pauline's. So they met when they were in school. They ended up going to the same school, and when Juliet moved to New Zealand, everybody really wanted to be her friend, and. She had the nice English accent because she was from England and her parents were you know, on the wealthy side and she was pretty and people wanted to be her friend and she wasn't really all that interested in making friends <laughs> except when she met Pauline, who mm. everybody thought was kind of weird and kind of kind of creepy. She just sort of was on her own a lot, like a loner. <laughs> That's interesting. Everybody wants to be your friend, but then you choose somebody who... You choose the loner, the weird kid. Um, It turns out that they're both really weird. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) They both have these, like, very rich fantasy lives, like, Mm -hmm. in their heads. Um, They both had childhood illnesses. Juliet had, uh, when she was um, a child, she had pneumonia, and it weakened her lungs because she was really young. Mm -hmm. And so... She couldn't do a lot of physical stuff. Okay. And Pauline had a childhood illness that affected one of her legs, so she always had a limp. So she really couldn't be active either. Right. So during gym and stuff like that, mm. they ended up having to sit, you know, in the bleachers while everybody else exercised. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. what I needed, a childhood illness. Yes. So you never <laughs> had to do physical oh <laughs> For yes, what? <laughs> so I didn't have to do PE. No PE. <laughs> and that's how, that's how they started chatting with each other not so i could commit murder <laughs> so i could like, sit out during pe okay and it was important to me. <laughs> <laughs> clarify that yeah 
And so that's how they got to talking and found that they both thought that they were so smart. <laughs> of course. I like the way you put that. They both thought. They were, they were oh, so smart. smart. <laughs> and talented and beautiful. Yes. And so they became the best of friends. So... They each thought that the other was, or they both thought that themselves Them were? individually. <laughs> but once they started hanging out with each other, Pauline thought that Juliet was the smartest, be- most beautiful girl ever, and Juliet acknowledged that Pauline was on her level. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now we get the comic relief. Right. <laughs> Pauline was very devoted to Juliet. And Juliet was very devoted to Juliet, so uh, <laughs> so, not okay. so it was great. <laughs> Juliet was fifteen, and Pauline was fourteen. Um, they'd become incredibly close. They didn't have any other friends except for each other. They spent so much time together. Pauline would go and stay at Juliet's house, which is big and fancy and she lived in some small little house with her mom and her dad and her siblings and they had a room that they would rent out to people so it was a pretty crowded Mm -hmm. place and so she would spend a lot of time over there with Juliet and her family and her family seemed to just accept her like okay this is Juliet's friend and you know great like they really didn't have anything against Pauline or anything like that. And they seemed to genuinely like her. But they were spending a lot of time together. And at some point, Juliet's father was like, this is, they're, they're getting really close. That's interesting. And I'm concerned about how close they're getting. And so he went and had a talk with Pauline's mom about how close they were getting. Uh-huh. He recommended a doctor that he knew, a friend of his, mm-hmm. for Pauline to go and get checked out pauline to go and get checked out <laughs> he he didn't take julia anywhere to get get looked at or talked because to. it's a medical condition too right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he took her to the doctor and pretty much told pauline's mother that uh she was suffering from homosexuality <laughs> and um suffering. yeah yeah I don't um, think she was suffering. But that she would grow out of it. Oh, of course. Wow. Um, and, you know, kind of recommended that maybe she shouldn't hang out with Juliet so much. They tried to put a little distance there, but that didn't really, really happen. The relationship was already there. So yeah. So it was, yeah. Um, and Pauline did have a boyfriend at some point. Mm-hmm. That didn't really go anywhere. Mm-hmm. Pauline really tried. <laughs> but it's not really something that she really wanted. Yeah. You know? And so that didn't really go anywhere. Pauline's mother is really trying to keep her away from Juliet, which is causing a lot of issues between her and Pauline. They already had issues. Like, this wasn't like suddenly my mother's being difficult. They were always having issues. This was just another another thing. Um. And it's not really uncommon for a teenage daughter to disagree with her mother and right. have that kind of problems. But from the way it was described in this book, 
uh, Nora, Pauline's mother, would fly off the handle about things, like small little things, and just yell and, you know, treat Pauline badly. And this was, like, even before Juliet ever came to town or anything like mm. that. She would just treat her badly and then feel bad about it later and then try to make it up to her. But it was a constant just hmm. Nora being awful and then trying to make up for it. Wow. And so then once the whole Juliet thing happened, it just became more and more. Um, and she would do this thing where she would tell Pauline, um, if you're good and you help out with the ho- like the housework and, you know, do your chores and stuff like that, Mm-hmm. Then, you know, I'll let you go and spend the weekend at Juliet's house. And so she would be extra good and try to please her mom. And then at the end, be like, and then at the end, Nora would be like, see how much better you're doing without Juliet. Oh. And it's just like, so it would set a fire in, in, in Pauline because I was told that if I did good, this is my reward. Yeah. Yeah. And then to be like, but see, without Juliet's influence, you're such a good girl. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, you're, you're going to end up dead. <laughs> <laughs> see what kind of good girl. Yeah. It was just like, and Pauline, both Pauline and Juliet kept journals, kept, um, they wrote constantly because, again, they thought they were literary geniuses. Mm-hmm. And so they wrote constantly. <clears throat> They wrote stories together, their letters, like, they were such drama queens. <laughs> <laughs> like, they would write, they um, decided that their names were going to be, Juliet was going to be Deborah, and Pauline was going to be Gina, mm-hmm. and then Juliet made everybody in her family call her Deborah, and um, <laughs> her family was like, okay, sure, Deborah. They um, had this elaborate story that they were working on. So they would write letters to each other as their characters. Mm. And it was just, it was weird. (laughs) They got really fixated on movie stars and like Mm -hmm. kept scrapbooks about movie stars. I'm not sure that was so unusual at the time. Okay. Because movie stars... That was still sort of new that you could get movie stars pictures from magazines and there weren't, you know, billions of people trying to be movie stars yet. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure that was completely crazy. Okay. Just a symptom. (laughs) Yeah. All the others. Well, because they definitely thought that they were so beautiful and so talented Mm -hmm. that if they went to Hollywood, they would obviously be movie stars. Of course. So. Yeah. Not far from the truth. It's right, like. yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so they just had this really elaborate fantasy life. Juliet's parents, Hilda and Henry, mm-hmm. when she was young and she got sick with pneumonia, they sent her to live with the family in the Bahamas. Just She was like under five years old. Wow. And they were just like... Bye. And she was there for a year. Wow. Yeah. Um, 
Hilda had said that when they had gotten Juliet back, she came back to England. She was there for a while with them that she was uncontrollable. Um, she would argue with her less than five-year-old daughter about like crossing the street for like half an hour. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, this sounds like you. <laughs> this sounds like a you problem mm-hmm. and not a kid problem. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. But uh, sure, lady, sure. <laughs> um, she got sick again and they sent her away again because uh-huh. she got sick again. And they sent her away again. Really, it just seemed like Hilda was not very good at being a mom and she didn't want to be a mom. Yeah. But then she had another kid. Oh. So while Juliet was gone again, she had another kid. Hmm. And didn't send that kid away. Ever? Mm-mm. And so Juliet's dad, Henry, was actually a very well-respected scientist. Like He came to the U.S. to help with the hydrogen bomb and like... Just the, all kinds of stuff. Like, what? he was very uh, highly regarded mm-hmm. as a scientist. And at some point, he just decided that, really, he just didn't want to really do this anymore. So, he took a job as being kind of like a dean of a school there in New Zealand, which everybody thought that he was really overqualified for. Mm-hmm. Like, why would you want to come do this? Mm-hmm. And you're this award-winning, you know, scientist. And it was just like, well, you know, the New Zealand weather will really help out Juliet with her illness. And I don't really want to do this anymore. And I just kind of want to, you know, kind of want a little quiet life. Mm -hmm. And so they go to New Zealand. Juliet is still not with her family. Like she is still with some other family somewhere else. She actually ends up in New Zealand before they show up to New Zealand. What? So she's staying there with the family that was taking care of her. Uh Uh-huh. Until her parents came. Wow. And so, yeah, it was just like, when they sent her away, they sent her away. <laughs> right? It wasn't like <laughs> summer camp. It was like, oh, it's, it's been a year, uh, I guess. Already? I guess she should come home, <laughs> I guess. Wow. And so she ends up there, and that's, and then like, right from the get-go, they sent her off to a boarding school there mm-hmm. in New Zealand. So she's not even at home. Like, they sent her off to some girls' school until the girls' school, like, gets closed because they were super weird. (laughs) (laughs) It was was bought by some guy who had, like, these really weird beliefs. Uh Um, And it kind of shows up in Juliet's stuff later on, but he thought that um, there was a different plane of existence that Mm. if you he had all these weird rules and it was just craziness like it was it was nuts i could see where it kind of came from like legit philosophical thought Mm -hmm. but then he just kind of went a little crazy with that and so it was just like we probably should not let this be a girl's school (laughs) anymore (laughs) so they closed that and juliet went home and that's when she started going to kind of just the regular school there in their little town and that's when she Uh met pauline so hilda shows up into this little town and they're fairly wealthy compared to everybody else in this little town Mm -hmm. and hilda really is just looking for a man 
What? Yeah, I mean, she's married, but she doesn't care about that. Okay. She, she's looking. She's looking for a man, and she actually is one of the people that starts a marriage counseling mm. committee there in her little town. <laughs> you can do that by committee? Mm. I guess so. Because she had no qualifications right. at all. So oh she wants gosh. all the men to come and talk to her, or at least about about all the ones that are about, the ones about their marriage problems. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so she knows who's not doing good. Yes. All the women. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, so it's not go do her own counseling. Yeah. <laughs> it's not long before a guy comes in to talk to her about his marriage problems uh, named Bill Perry. And Hilda decides that, you know what, they should really help Bill out by moving him into their house. Oh, yeah. Yes, that is a good idea. They, they have sort of a, like a little separate flat that's connected to the house mm-hmm. but you know it's kind of his own and they really just wow. just need to help him out and it wasn't long before it was like hilda and bill are totally together and henry is all we're just going to be super adult about this <laughs> and what <laughs> and if she wants to be with him she can be with him in my house wow <laughs> That's uh-huh. wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. He, he is very open minded. He's very much a milk toast. <laughs> is what that was. Because he did not like he did not want to bite. He did not he was just oh, like Oh man. Whatever. Whatever you say, dear. Yeah, yeah like just whatever. Um and then, you know, when she's like, I want a divorce, he's like, oh, all right. Mm gonna be super adult about this like, well, right because like, he's got all the money and she wants a divorce so you're out of here yeah so maybe i don't know they're in this whole uh, in between divorce like mm-hmm. she wants a divorce they haven't really like set anything in motion to get a divorce mm-hmm. juliet and pauline are super close and their efforts to put a little distance between them didn't work henry isn't a very good dean like the faculty mm-hmm. doesn't like him, mm-hmm. the board doesn't like him. Like, well, yeah, but he's a complete pushover and yeah. can't make decisions and can't stand up for yeah, himself. Yeah, so he's That's, just so wow. no one really likes him and wants him to be there. He was appointed, so it wasn't really like they mm-hmm. couldn't fire him. Mm-hmm. At some point, he was like, "Well, my wife wants a divorce, and you know, no one here likes me, and I should just give her the divorce and get out of New Zealand." Uh-huh. And so. They're going to do that. Hilda doesn't really like being a mom. So, and Henry doesn't really want to take care of his daughter. Mm-hmm. So he decides that he's going to go back to England and look for a job. He's going to send Juliet to South Africa with his sister, where his sister lives. And Hilda's going to stay in New Zealand to pack up the house. So where's the other child? Just around. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Around. Kind of like our twin, the twins. Yeah, like he's just, yeah. he's just kind of around. Yes. Yeah. Like the only kid that Henry takes decides to take with him is his son. This other, the other child, Jonathan. Uh-huh. Okay. Wow. But like what he's up to, what he's doing, where he's at, who knows? Nobody Remind cares about him. what year this is? 1954 in New Zealand. <laughs> so wow. it's just like, you know. He's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so now they're going to send Juliet to South Africa. 
where the climate will be very well for her health Mm -hmm. because we're still very concerned about her health. Obviously. Yeah. And so that means that they're going to be separated. Like they're going to be separated by continents and oceans. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that's not okay with either one of them. Because Pauline has been what she thinks is that she's been accepted by the Holme family, Mm -hmm. that they like her, genuinely care about her. Juliet was convinced that Pauline could go with her to mm. South Africa. And her parents didn't really tell her that that wasn't going to happen. Like, they just kind of let her believe that because mm-hmm. it was easier. Mm-hmm. Wow. Like, instead of just being like, no, honey, that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Pauline has to stay with her parents and her family. It was, well, I don't know, Maybe. Mm. you know yeah and so they they did just leading her on yeah they didn't they did nothing to to let either one of those girls know that that wasn't gonna happen Mm -hmm. so in their minds the only person standing in their way was pauline's mother and that was kind of the same thing that pauline's mother was doing to pauline yeah just kind of oh if you do this yeah kind of thing then you'll get this and so Mm -hmm. they're thinking they're gonna get this and yeah pauline didn't really have any concern about her father like she was pretty sure that her dad would just let her go like whatever yeah Hmm. wow but the person that was standing in their way was her mom Mm -hmm. and her mom would have immediately been like you're not going to south africa yeah (laughs) you know done right (laughs) so and they knew that Mm -hmm. and so pauline had written in her journals um basically that they had come up with a plan to kill her mom and she was looking forward to it and excited about it oh yeah to it wow Mm -hmm. i was upset with my mom for a long time but that (laughs) never entered my mind right in her journal like she actually wrote on the day of the murder which was june 22nd like she actually wrote that today is the happy day they were both very um cold-blooded they they really were and it it gets (laughs) it's older yeah (laughs) and so they had made this plan where they would ask nora to go with them to a little tea room and then take a nice little walk through victoria park and while they were on the trails in the park they would hit her on the head mm-hmm. and then claim that she had fallen and had an accident so because they were so smart <laughs> <laughs> they thought that hitting her once on the head with half a brick was going to kill her because that's how you do it in the movies right oh, yeah at least in the 50s yes <laughs> yeah yes <laughs> Uh, so Juliet brings a break from home, goes over to Pauline's house. They have lunch there with the family. Mm-hmm. They are so sweet, so nice. Everybody's thinking like, you know, especially with Pauline, because Pauline was a, a terror. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so they're like, yeah, Pauline's, you know, acting really nice. And everybody's, you know, having a good lunch. So they, after lunch... They go with Pauline's mom to the tea room. Pauline's mom is thinking, you know, this is going to be a nice little outing and just kind of a way for them to, you know, say goodbye to Juliet because she's leaving. 
And she's super happy about Juliet leaving because mm-hmm. whenever Juliet's not around, Pauline isn't as awful. Yeah. Isn't as awful. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, she's not awful, but. Oh, yeah. Wow. But I think Nora had a lot to do with how awful right. Pauline was when Juliet wasn't around. Yeah. But mm-hmm. she would at least talk to her and <laughs> yeah you know so she was looking forward to Juliet leaving and you know maybe trying to have some kind of relationship with her daughter mm-hmm. they go to the they go to the tea room and they have a nice you know she has tea the girls have soda and they have you know sweets and they're having a nice time and the lady at the tea house you know was talking about how you know everybody seemed like they were having a good time and you know Everything was fine. And so they take off to go down you know, into the park to walk. And shortly later, the girls come back and they're covered in blood and they're screaming and they're, you know, oh my gosh, my mom fell and she had an accident. And the lady's like, is she like, is she alive? Is she like, how badly is she hurt? They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to talk about it. She's, she's hurt. Mm-hmm. And so she sends her husband down there to because it's like if she fell you know she's going to need help and so they the girls tell her that they tried to help her up but she was too heavy and so they couldn't help her up and so they came up here to get help and they're covered in blood and juliet is in hysterics and pauline seems to be in shock Hmm. and so they're very concerned that they have blood on them and blood on their hands and so the woman takes them to the washroom and just going to let them wash up because as far as she's concerned, the lady fell and had an accident. Right. Yeah. Like she's not thinking these two just murdered someone yeah. and I'm helping them sure. wash off. Yeah. Evidence. Yeah. So she takes them into the washroom, you know, tells them that, you know, here are some towels. As she's walking away, she hears Juliet say, oh, isn't she nice? <laughs> And then they start giggling. And so the husband goes down there. That's creepy. Goes down there with with a friend because he's thinking, I'm going to need help getting this woman up here. They go down there and she is very obviously dead. Her head was bludgeoned. There was blood all over her. Um, There was a brick and a stocking over to the side. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. And so, um, he was like, yeah, this was not an accident. (laughs) So he calls the police. These girls are so smart. So smart. So smart. They were geniuses, I tell you. So he's like, we're going to call the police. So he goes up there to call the police. At, At this point, they've already called Juliet's dad. He's coming to get them. They still don't really know what happened. They... Um, they couldn't get a hold of Pauline's father, and so Juliet's dad was coming to get get them. He gets there, he picks them up, he takes them back to his his house, um, where Juliet's mom and her boyfriend are. <laughs> they thought they had right. a few minutes, right? <laughs> they get there, and the girls are you know bloody clothes and all that. And Hilda immediately is like, oh, let's get you out of those clothes. You guys need to, you know, take a bath. And 
then we'll, you know, start asking what's going on mm-hmm. and hear what's, what, what happened and try to figure it out. But she knows that those clothes need to go. Wow. Mm. Um, whatever it is that happened, those clothes need to go. Mm-hmm. And so she gets them up there. They take a bath. They get all nice and clean. She puts them in bed because, you know, they're still really upset. They, she separates them. Pauline's in one room and Juliet's in hers. Mm-hmm. And she goes to talk to Juliet. Mm-hmm. Bill Perry goes and talks to Pauline. Because Henry asked Bill to stay and help. Because <laughs> Henry's useless. Oh, yes. <laughs> Henry is very useless. And he recognizes that Bill is going to know what to do. Hmm. And so... Bill goes and talks to Pauline about what happened and Pauline tells the same story. We were walking and she fell on, she fell in the trail and she hit her head repeatedly. (laughs) It bounced. Uh (laughs) And it just kept bouncing. (laughs) Right. Yes. And so Bill is not a stupid man. (laughs) And he's just like, that doesn't sound right. So he goes to, you know, find out what Hilda found out. Juliet tells a very similar story. They're not stupid people. So they're like, we need to start destroying some evidence. (laughs) So Juliet's mom goes and collects her journals, goes and collects all her notebooks where she's written stories, her scrapbooks, and goes to the gardener and says, I need you to set these things on fire. And the gardener's like, sure. Yes, ma'am fire <laughs> well that's what he gets paid for oh, right. Right. <laughs> you don't ask questions you just burn it <laughs> but there's a problem there is a problem eventually the police decide that they're going to go impose on the whole maze because the police don't really want to bother the rich people uh-huh. so but eventually it's like this woman did not fall Mm-hmm. She was bludgeoned to death, uh-huh. and we need to go find out what with, happened with the brick that was left lying right there. Uh huh. In a girl's stocking, like <laughs> they put the brick in the stocking, tied it up, and used it to whack her. Mm. So let me just say, you're you're having tea, <laughs> and I can't imagine they have a big purse. So but she's like, she's got to be carrying this brick. How is she carrying the brick? She, she's got a purse and it's in her purse. Oh it's half a brick, right? It's half a brick. It's half a brick. It would fit in your purse. It would fit in your purse. And she would walk like this. <laughs> That's it's so right. heavy. Well, she already had the limp. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> That's true. Okay. So the police eventually go. Like They call, mm-hmm. set up a time. When they're going to come calling on when the it's convenient on the, on the bridge people, yeah, uh-huh. pretty much. And so they show up, they talk to Juliet, and they pretty much tell Juliet that we don't think you had anything to do with this, but we really need to know what happened. And that's when Juliet figures it out that they really just want her to turn on Pauline, and oh, they will leave her alone no. if she turns on Pauline. Well, and Pauline's journal wasn't destroyed. Juliet's no. was exactly. And so she turns on Pauline and basically says that um, she had no idea what was what was going going to happen. She thought they were just going to go and have tea and go on this nice little walk. And she was walking ahead. And suddenly she hears that they're fighting behind her. And so, you know, she doesn't she doesn't want to go get involved in that because it's 
Pauline and her mom and they're having an argument. Mm -hmm. So she's just sort of walking ahead and then suddenly she hears a noise and she turns around and Pauline is attacking her mother with a brick. And because Pauline's her best friend, she just goes along with what Pauline wanted to say that she had an accident because she didn't want Pauline to get in trouble. And so the police are like, okay, that sounds good enough to me. The police go and talk to Pauline. At this point, while the police are talking to Juliet, mm-hmm. Hilda's kind of already had a little talk with Pauline about how much trouble Juliet could get into, knowing full well how Pauline felt about Juliet. And basically it was like, you know, how much they loved Pauline and if, you know. Manipulating. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. And so when the police come and talk to Pauline, Pauline basically says that she did it. (gasps) Juliet had no idea. She was walking on ahead and she just had a fight with her mom and it escalated. And (gasps) Juliet had no, no knowledge of what was going on and didn't help or participate at all. Wow. So they arrest Pauline and take her to the police station. We've con- finally contacted her dad. And he goes up to the police station to give his statement. And he's devastated. Mm-hmm. Like his wife is dead. His daughter killed his killed her mom. Mm-hmm. And so he's just sort of sitting there just completely devastated about the whole thing. Um, the police have asked him for permission to go search Pauline's room and he gladly gave it. He was like, yeah. Mm-hmm. They find all her journals and all her stories where there she is planning it along. And that's kind of when she's starting to realize that she's taking all the blame and Juliet's going to be whisked away to South Africa and she's not ever going to see her again. Okay. So, I mean, the whole point was for them not to be separated. Mm-hmm. And even if they were in jail they would be together yeah and so she um asked for a piece of paper because she would you know every night she writes in her journal even though she doesn't have her journal she would like to still write in her journal so Mm -hmm. they give her a piece of paper and a pencil and she writes this whole journal entry about how her and juliet did this and how much juliet helped and so forth she had no intention of it being private she knew that yeah. the cop was going to be like, let's see what you wrote. And then it was like, okay. So then they went and arrested Juliet. While they're talking to uh, Pauline's dad, Pauline's dad tells the police that him and Nora were not actually married. And in 1954, this was a big deal. Uh, mm-hmm. Even so, in New Zealand. Yes. Okay. And so um, the they weren't actually married, that he had been married before mm-hmm. he met Nora and left his wife and his two kids and ran off with Nora. And he was pretty much weaving this whole story about how he married this woman that was older than him and she turned out to be totally crazy <laughs> and tried to kill him. And so he left But because he had these two kids with her, like, he was sending child support, you know, and Uh it was just, you know, couldn't couldn't get a divorce because he didn't want the ex-wife to know where he was, but somehow he was still sending money to them. Um, It was... So was he Pauline's dad? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And so everybody thought that they were 
married mm-hmm. and had this family, but they weren't. Okay. So the house and all that stuff was in Nora's name because he did leave his family, did not get a divorce, did not send any kind of child support or anything like that. So he put everything in Nora's name in case the wife tried to find him and get some money out of him. Okay. So when Nora died Mm. and they weren't married, none of that was actually his now. Wow. (laughs) So... But it was this, it was a big deal that they were not married. Mm-hmm. So because they were not married, Pauline wasn't Pauline Reaper. She was now Pauline Parker. And they took her mother's maiden name mm-hmm. because they weren't legally married. And then that's what. So she wasn't Nora Reaper. She was Nora Parker. Wow. Yeah. And so they're just like, well, you're not going by your father's last name because legally... They're not married. Mm. <laughs> so I was like, okay. <laughs> she had no name. idea. Mm-hmm. So like they, they were, t- they went to tell her that she was going to be, you know, tried as Pauline Parker because her parents weren't married. And she was like, what? Okay. <laughs> like, Surprise. so yeah, had no clue. So their trial was everything about this was crazy. <laughs> so they go and they arrest Juliet. Mm-hmm. Juliet, you know, is a, already stopped trying to just be like, no, it was all Pauline, because mm-hmm. she came to the same realization that they were going to be separated, and she didn't want that either. And so she was like, yeah, I helped, you know, and gives a whole statement where she's basically saying that she did help. Mm-hmm. Uh, she hit Nora on the head a few times with the brick. She held her down. Oh my gosh! So they they did this together. Yeah, and so. They put them in the jail cell together. This is a small town, so there wasn't like we're putting in two different places. Mm-hmm. They're in the same cell together. They had a female police officer like sitting out there to, you know, make sure that everything was fine. Mm-hmm. And she said that they acted like they were at a sleepover. Just mm. one on one bunk, the other on the bottom bunk. And just gossiping and laughing and just having a great time. Like, they had absolutely no remorse. They were not worried about what was going to happen to them. They were together, and that's all that mattered. Mm. Juliet's parents finally get her a lawyer. And they have means, so they get a fairly good lawyer. Mm -hmm. And they go ahead and help out Pauline in that that area, too. And so they have a lawyer. Mm Mm-hmm. They each have their own lawyer. And Juliet thinks that her lawyer has got the most beautiful brown eyes. <laughs> so she calls him Bambi. Oh. And that is her name for him is Bambi. <laughs> yeah. Pauline, okay. didn't, Pauline cared not for <laughs> her lawyer. She didn't care. <laughs> wow. So... The lawyers are, of course, like, what were these people thinking? Letting them talk to the cops without calling a lawyer. And it's like, right? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, you're supposed to be all educated. And you're just like, yeah, sure. Let, let the kids talk to the cops. Yeah. So they were really just like, they've already admitted it. Mm-hmm. There's statements where they're admitting it. There's confessions. It's like, what are we supposed to do here? And so they're just like, well, they were really close. And so they start reading Pauline's diaries and so forth. 
And they were indeed very close. They kept denying that there was ever a sexual relationship. Mm -hmm. But Pauline's journals say differently. Mm. They would bathe together. They were 14, 15 years old. Mm -hmm. They would sleep in the same bed and pretend that the other one was a movie star. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it was very clear by Pauline's journals that they had a romantic sexual Mm -hmm. relationship. Yeah. And so they were like, obviously this is insane. And so they're insane. And that's (laughs) where we're going to go is that. We're going to say that they are insane and try to send them off to an asylum as opposed to prison. Because of their age, they weren't in risk of being hung. Okay. And at at the time, apparently, that was was still a possibility. (laughs) (laughs) But it didn't sound like them being declared insane and going to an asylum Mm -hmm. was better than going to prison. Mm -hmm. Because in New Zealand... They were basically in prison until, as they put it, I think it was up to Her Majesty's pleasure. So basically, if the queen was like, they've served enough time, then they were free. Um, And by the queen, they mean like the court, because the queen doesn't really care. (laughs) (laughs) The queen herself is not involved. Yeah. But that was the terminology. It was like, Mm -hmm. at at Her Majesty's pleasure... So they could have been let go fairly quickly mm-hmm. at the asylum, though. That, w- that wasn't going to happen. Like, they were going to keep them there until they were cured of lesbianism. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Wow. So really, like, for them to go towards insanity was kind of weird. Yeah. They really tried their darndest to have them found insane mm-hmm. um, and they presented all their evidence um juliet was really like the only one that kept saying that they didn't have a sexual relationship she acted very confused when she was asked about it mm-hmm. she was like but we're both women and they're like oh, okay um we have pauline's journals <laughs> <laughs> and she was just like she was like yeah whatever Maybe she really thought she was the other person that they were play acting with. Yeah, that she was really Deborah. Like, it was just, (laughs) like, they were both just completely nonchalant about the whole thing. Mm. They showed absolutely no feeling of remorse. Mm -hmm. Throughout the trial, they would be whispering and giggling to each other. Like, it was just crazy. Yeah. So they were tried together? Yes. Okay. They were tried together. They had separate lawyers, but they yeah. were tried together. Okay. Hmm. This has a lot of similarities with my case. Mm-hmm. Anyway. And so the prosecution does bring in the fact that Pauline had a boyfriend and mm-hmm. attempted to have a sexual relationship with him. Mm-hmm. The fact that that never really happened because Pauline just really wasn't into it didn't really seem to really make much of a difference to them. Mm-hmm. They're like, she had a boyfriend and she had sex with him at least once. So, is she really insane? Hmm. Yeah. And so, when the prosecution is talking about that, about Pauline's relationship with this guy, Juliet 
is having a terrible time mm-hmm. listening to this. Like she's gritting her teeth, she's spitting, she's angry, and she knew that Pauline had a boyfriend, but she had no idea mm. how far that relationship had gone. Wow. So here she is hearing all of this stuff, and she is obviously not happy about it. Yeah. And Pauline is just like, her head is lowered the entire time. She doesn't look up. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, okay. It's like, she was obviously very upset about it. They get found guilty. The whole insanity thing was just thrown out. They were like, they were not, they were not crazy. Yeah. <laughs> like this was, they were not. So they get sent to prison. Uh-huh. Um, they had decided, the court had decided that uh, Pauline was going to go to one prison and Juliet was going to go to the other. Mm-hmm. One of them was a notor- like notoriously terrible prison. Like mm-hmm. the conditions were terrible. Mm-hmm. Like it was just an awful place to be. Mm-hmm. And so they were going to send Juliet up there and Pauline was going to stay in this other prison, which wasn't so bad. <laughs> It really wasn't. Like, the way they made it sound, it was like, mm-hmm. bungalows? Like, oh what? Oh, my goodness. Wow. Yeah. But Juliet was going to go to the bad one? Uh-huh. That's what's... And, yeah. And the, the way they were going to do that was that she was going to be up there for a while, and then they were going to switch. Oh. <laughs> so then they were going to bring <laughs> Juliet to the steady. nice one, and Paulina <laughs> to the bad one, and so on. Okay. Until they, I guess, until they were released. That didn't happen. <laughs> they just sort of left Juliet up there. <laughs> they were just oh. like... I guess it turned out to be too much work. Yeah. <laughs> so they just sort of left her up there. Pauline, without Juliet, made up with her her um, sister mm-hmm. and really just kind of devoted herself to religion and just really tried to, you know, she was studying and just really trying to to make something of, of the situation. Mm-hmm. Um she would still write about Juliet in her journal, and she did still miss Juliet, but she was really trying to to focus. So throughout the trial, Hilda was there, Juliet's mom, every day, was not very emotional at all. Mm-hmm. Like, she was very cold, but she was there every day. Um, Juliet refused to see her mother. When Juliet was sent away... She wanted to see her one more time before she was sent away to, to the prison that she was going to, and Juliet refused to see her. And so um, she, was pretty, she pretty much told Juliet's lawyer to let her know that she was there for anything that Juliet needed. If there was something she could do, she would do it. Mm-hmm. Two weeks later, she changed her name and left New Zealand. First and last name she changed, or just wow. her last uh-huh. name? Wow. Yep. Yep, she ran off with Bill Perry, because Bill couldn't find work there, because mm-hmm. he had stayed with Hilda throughout uh-huh. the whole trial. Henry was like, well, Juliet's been arrested. I'm going to take my son, and I'm going to go. <sighs> so he didn't really get, like, much blowback from the trial mm-hmm. like he went back to england got himself a very nice cushy job mm. and just went on living his life and so bill couldn't find any work there so they decided to leave and so like two weeks after she tells 
Juliet's lawyer that just let her know that I'm here, that I will do anything that I can to help her. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's got two weeks because I'm leaving. <laughs> like she changed her name and left. Left the country. Okay, so wow. you may be getting to this, but her name is now Anne Perry. Mm-hmm. So they're in their separate prisons mm-hmm. for five and a half years okay. before they are secretly released. Secretly released? Yes. This was So not even hugely. the pardon from the queen or whatever it was, the thing? The, the court eventually was like, you've served your time, okay. you're free to go. But because this was so highly publicized, mm-hmm. like internationally, oh, this was very um, publicized. Mm-hmm. They didn't want to tell the public that they were going to be released. Okay. And shortly before their release, a reporter had asked the, um, he's got a fancy title, but basically he's in charge of the prisons. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um. And so they had asked him if there was any plans for Juliet and Pauline to be released. And he was like, no, we've made no plans for them to be released. And then like days after he made that statement, he let them out, gave them new passports, new names, and off they went. Wow. So he picked their names. They got to pick their names. Okay. But... Yeah, you got passports, everything. Yeah. and you are free to go. And get out of New Zealand. Get out of if here. If you want. <laughs> <laughs> if you want. And so Juliet picked the name Anne Stewart. Okay. And took off. And Pauline picked um, Hillary Nathan. Okay. And off she went. Not together. Not together. Okay. And uh, Juliet, she's in her 20s. Okay. And so... She still has the dream of going to America. Um, I don't know if she still thinks that she's going to make it as a movie star, but she still wants to go to America. So she gets a job as a stewardess and hops on a plane to do her her job until one day she flies to California and then just decides not to leave. Mm -hmm. So Anne Perry was an illegal immigrant, y'all. Wow. She didn't have a visa. She was just like, I'm going to stay here. And so she stayed. Interesting. Yeah. For a bit. And then decided to go back to England. But Uh she was here for for many years. Yeah. Wow. Um, She started writing her. She was still always, you know, writing. And -hmm. so she was going to continue to write. And so she wrote. And she went back to England and eventually started her career as a murder mystery writer. She changed her name to Anne Perry. Um, is that officially now her name, or is that just a writer's mm-hmm. pseudonym? I'm pretty sure that's officially now okay. her name. Hmm. And so she's Anne Perry. Mm-hmm. And she published several books. No one had any idea who she was. Pauline took off somewhere, and no one has any idea where Pauline went. She was not looking to be in any kind of limelight. She was just, leave me alone. Yeah. And so she went off to go be alone. Mm-hmm. And Anne was the one that was like, I really need to be adored. Mm-hmm. And so she wrote her books. She was starting to make a name for herself. And she was you know, starting to have bestsellers. And everything was going great for her. 
until Peter Jackson decided that he would really like to make a movie about what happened. Peter Jackson of Lord of the Rings. of New Zealand. Yes. Uh Oh, my goodness. Decides that he would really like to make a movie about what happened. Uh, Several plays and stuff had been written about this. Mm -hmm. And a couple of books and so forth. So people had already done all the research for him. He just Mm -hmm. really had contacts in people. And they were more than happy to help out Peter Jackson. Mm -hmm. And so he got all this information and he wrote... And did uh, Heavenly Creatures with Kate Winslet mm. playing Juliet. Okay. And um, so this brought a whole bunch of attention to this case. Mm-hmm. And so at this point, it was like the 90s. Mm-hmm. And so 40 years had passed. Mm-hmm. And Perry was a big success. No one really knew what had happened to Pauline. And so this all brought it back. And so a reporter there in their small little turn in their small little town was like, what happened to Juliet and Pauline? Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to investigate. Uh She does. It was not difficult at all to piece together (laughs) that Anne Perry was and Stewart, who was Juliet Holmey. Wow. And so she thought long and hard about this. And she did find Pauline as well. Um, but Pauline wasn't a huge success. Mm-hmm. She was living in some little ranch somewhere. Like in, She had lived in England for a bit, too, and then moved to Scotland. And so she was like, out in the middle of nowhere, Scotland, hmm. small, tiny town, and was not looking to make any waves wow. for herself. Yeah. Um, and so the reporter was like, okay, I need to decide what I'm going to do with this information. Am I going to mm-hmm. write about it? Am mm-hmm. I going to snag this scoop and let everybody know what am I going to do? So she calls mm-hmm. Peter Jackson up and she's like, so I found this stuff out. And I'm not sure what to do. Mm-hmm. And Peter Jackson was like, leave him alone. What good is it going to do? Like, just just leave it alone. You know, he was already kind of feeling kind of guilty about this movie that he was making. Mm-hmm. But he was just like, what is this going to accomplish? I was like, just, just let him be. Yeah. And so she's thinking about it. And then she's like, wait a minute. And Perry writes murder mysteries. Mm-hmm. I'm blowing up her life. <laughs> and I'm like, I hear you. <laughs> so she calls Anne Perry's publisher mm-hmm. and is just like, hey, did you know that Anne Perry is Juliet Hume, who is a murderer? Mm-hmm. And her publisher is just like, you have the wrong number. <laughs> There is no way that Anne Perry is this person. You have the wrong number. And now I got to call our legal team because it sounds mm-hmm. like someone's going to start spreading rumors about Anne Perry. Mm-hmm. So she calls up Anne Perry to basically say, look, this this lady called me up and she's like starting all kinds this of wild stories. Yeah. And we need to get ahead of it and we need to contact legal. And Anne Perry's like, you can't do that. <laughs> I, I am Juliet me wow and then it's like oh and then 
her publisher was like, cha-ching. <laughs> <laughs> because Anne Perry is a murderer who writes murder mysteries. <laughs> and guess what's going to happen? People are going to buy her book. Yep. So then Anne Perry starts hitting the circuit. She starts doing interviews. And her story changes so much. Like, mm. you know, and she just, she milks it. Yeah. And her profits skyrocket. Oh. Yeah. So. That's disgusting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Pauline is just trying to live a quiet little life. She really is. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, like, people start coming to to try to talk to her, and she doesn't want to talk to anybody. Mm-hmm. She's just like, leave me alone. Mm-hmm. Um, for the most part, people respect respected that and just sort of left her alone. Mm-hmm. The movie came out, and she really wasn't bothered all that much. After Ann Perry's publisher was contacted, and it became huge news, and Ann Perry was talking to everybody that would listen to her mm-hmm. about her side of the story. Mm-hmm. Eventually, uh, Pauline or Hillary Nathan decided that she was going to sell her house and move because the movie was about to like hit broadcasting on TV. Mm-hmm. Ann Perry was milking it as much as she possibly could, and yeah. she was like, "Someone's going to figure it out." Like she'd already had a couple of people mm-hmm. come up there and try to talk to her, a reporter, someone that wanted to like do a story on her. And so she was like, I don't want to have anything to do with this. Like, mm-hmm. I just want to be left alone. So she sells her house and moves somewhere else. Hmm. And off she went. Um, she did get her library science degree and was a librarian. Really? Just a, yeah. For a little bit. Just. Hmm. In Scotland? <laughs> yes. Wow. <laughs> Hmm. Um, but eventually she was just like just, she just wanted to be left alone and yeah. so she took off somewhere and people just kind of left her alone and really like it was Anne it was Anne's show mm-hmm. like yeah Pauline didn't want to talk oh well Anne was doing all the talking anyway yeah so so let me ask did either one of them get married no oh okay so <laughs> so uh huh <laughs> Here's the rest of the story. Yes. Anne is living in England, and she's got a companion, basically chats with her and talks with her about her books, and they come up with ideas, and Anne writes, and she does some editing for her, and, you know, just basically is her sounding board, and all that greatness. And still needs someone to tell her how great and genius mm-hmm. she is. Mm-hmm. And she found someone to tell her how great and what a genius she is. And so at some point, her companion decides that she is going to move to Scotland. And so she goes and moves to Scotland. And Anne Perry follows. Mm. Decides that she's going to go live in Scotland, too. Really? hmm And so she goes to Scotland, buys this big house and her companion lives in a tiny little room off to the side of her house mm. mm-hmm. that's weird yeah her longtime companion yes uh hillary nathan as well had a longtime companion mm-hmm. really don't know much about her 
just that she was living with someone and they lived together for a long time. And at some point she decided to leave because she was not being hounded. Mm -hmm. She had a couple of people come and was, you know, bringing up the past that she didn't want to talk about. Mm -hmm. So, and has talked a lot about what happened. And again, her side of the story, it doesn't seem like Pauline's all that interested in clearing up any of it. Mm-hmm. Again, she's just like, just leave me alone. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't care mm-hmm. what Anne's saying or what. And so she decided to sell her house when the movie was going to be broadcasted over TV and just get out of there. People had already pieced together who she was and she just wanted to be gone. Mm-hmm. The people that buy her house go and see that Pauline had this just big mural that she painted in her house. Mm-hmm. And I'll show you pictures of this. The mural is just sort of like different scenes where there's a dark-haired girl and a light-haired girl. Mm-hmm. And it tells of quite the story. And hmm. if you interpret some of that artwork, it's very much that she still thinks very highly of Juliet and not very highly of herself. Uh-huh. And that she still, after all this time, thinks about Juliet. One of the things that after the movie came out and Anne Perry told her story and who she was and all that, mm-hmm. someone wanted to do a documentary on her. And so she was like, yeah, okay. And so they followed her around and it sounded like it was super boring. It also sounded like it was super sad. Mm-hmm. Um, Anne Perry just sort of was at home and... She had a couple of people that very were very devoted to her, mm-hmm. but she definitely eclipsed their lives. Like her oh. longtime companion was just like, if Anne's happy, then we're happy. Oh. And it's just like, oh. Yeah. It's like, that sounds so sad for you. Yeah. <laughs> like, wow. So, so sad. Did Anne ever. Uh, see her mother again yes okay she did eventually like see her mom and had some kind of relationship with her mom how did she get the last name perry again did you say that she just chose it she just chose it mm-hmm. okay yeah kind of a coincidence isn't right it? right well uh juliet's mom ran off with bill perry yeah, and, right and lived right. with him for the rest of his life Okay. he passed away before she did oh. and so okay. so you know she took it as kind of his last name for, yeah. for mm-hmm. herself yeah. um, so they did this documentary on her mm-hmm. and at this point Ann Perry's like in her 70s okay. and the filmmakers are in the back, back seat of the car and Ann Perry's driving and her companion sitting next to her and they're having a conversation, and then just out of nowhere, her companion's like, you know, one day you're going to meet Mr. Wright, and everything is going to just, like, fall into place, and you're going to know that it's good, and you're just, and it's like, she's in her <laughs> 70s. She's never been married. She lives with you. <laughs> <laughs> and so the writer, the author, uh, he's just like, what the dickens is going on? To quote him directly. (laughs) And he's just like, what the dickens is going on? It's like, she's in her 70s. Does Anne Perry think that she's still going to, like, meet Mr. Wright? 
Or was this just another subtle way of saying, I'm not a lesbian? Yeah. <laughs> like, it even matters now. Right. <laughs> it's just like, seriously, Anne. Seriously. Did she ever write a murder mystery that was like her situation? So there's a whole chapter in this book <laughs> where he talks a little bit about her earlier work. Uh-huh. And I've read, I've read her first published book, mm-hmm. um, The Cater Street Hangman. Uh-huh. And I think I've talked about it before on, on here on the podcast. Um, where at the end, I'm just like, oh, Anne. <laughs> But apparently she has similar themes in at least the first few of her books in the series. Because mm-hmm. one of the things that they talked about whenever they had gotten caught was that they didn't really think they had done anything wrong. Nora was unhappy anyway. Hmm. And they, they did her a favor. Yeah. And they, they both of them seem to have been in some kind of delusion that they were above everybody else Mm -hmm. so laws really shouldn't apply to them and so if you have to commit murder for like a noble cause well what's what's the problem Mm. there wow and so apparently that comes up a couple of times in her books how the two main characters that are solving these mysteries are like well you know i mean yeah they committed murder but it was like for a good reason. Wow. <laughs> and wow. Yeah. And the in the way and I'm going to spoil the Cater Street hangman y'all. The way the first book ends like there's mm-hmm. these poor girls are just being strangled to death. And it's all their fault because they're walking around in the street by themselves. There you go. Okay. It's totally their fault. <laughs> and so when they finally fi- figure out who did it, it was the vicar's wife uh-huh. who was killing these girls because she was being tempted by them. And therefore, she thought because she was being tempted by these girls that the only way that she could save her soul was to kill these girls. Because they were the devil. Yeah. They deserved it. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And at the end, the main character, Charlotte, is all like, I didn't know that women could feel that way about other women. And I'm like, oh, Anne. <laughs> really? <laughs> wow. Mm-mm-mm. Yeah. That's just fascinating. They were super nuts. <laughs> <laughs> and it sounds like they still are. Yes. Yeah. You know... The Pauline, she just went to live her life. She yeah. really did dedicate herself to doing good and to give herself to religion. And but that doesn't excuse what she did, right? She just went to try to live her life the best way that she could, mm-hmm. and was obviously still feeling some kind of remorse. Sure, yeah, um, because she did that to herself. Like she went and isolated herself. Mm-hmm. Uh, while Anne seemed to like really think that she did nothing wrong and she was just going to go out and achieve what she had always wanted and that was fame and popularity. Yeah. Hmm. So many interesting themes that connect even though it's with mine even though they were so many years apart. Right. Okay, so... Our third book for today Mm -hmm. jumps back 60 years. 
This is called Alice Plus Frida Forever, A Murder in Memphis by Alex Alexis Co. And I'm going to say that Pat's book has the best cover. It's crazy. It's it crazy. is the best. Also, this oh. is Alice and Frida Forever is also available through our Libby app. Yes, it is. Uh, so, okay. yeah, I hadn't even thought about this till till just a little bit ago, but it really does look like, you know, locker room graffiti, mm-hmm. Alice plus Frida. Forever. Forever. Um, so, this takes place in, um, the, the story kind of starts about 1889, 1890, and the two main characters are Alice Mitchell and Frida Ward. And Alice and Frida meet at Higby School for Young Ladies, which is the up-and-coming place to send well-to-do young Memphians. <laughs> That's, yeah, I didn't know that was a thing. I didn't know that's what you call people from Memphis, Memphians. But um, they met there, and um, there was one other good friend, Lily Johnson, and then Frida's I think younger sister Joe, or maybe just a little older, but about the same. They're all about the same age. And these four girls kind of ran around together, but it was clear that Alice and Frida were kind of a pair, and, and Lily and Joe were sort of a pair. And it was interesting because they talked about how during this period, this was still kind of Victorian era, so well, well-bred young women... Um, didn't really talk about their desires for men, but one of the things that was acceptable was these close relationships with girlfriends that they called chumming. So I had never heard that term before, and it depends on where you find definitions for chumming, but apparently the way this person's using it in this book, it was these close intimate relationships among girlfriends generally but not just girls but kind of practice relationships so that when you get out of school and you go on to the real relationship with your your husband to be then you know you'll have some experience of of being close to someone wow yeah it's kind of weird. So, so kind of apparently it was acceptable. You, you, well, you've seen this, you know, a pair of girlfriends who are, you know, kind of have their arms through each other's arms uh-huh. and they're strolling down the street and they lean in and they giggle and they laugh and, and, you know, might fix each other's hair, uh-huh. you know, reach over and tuck hair behind your ear, that kind of thing. It didn't was go like perfectly too far. acceptable. Well, generally it didn't. Oh, okay. But with Alice and Frida, it's kind of hard to tell how far it went because nobody really talked about it. But it seemed that the sa- much the same kind of thing that you were talking about, Denise, with um, Pauline and Juliet. They would spend the night at the other's house and they would, you know, share a bed. But, you know, there weren't beds for, separate beds for everybody. Mm-hmm. But that was kind of out there. Um, and... So their relationship sort of built, and, and it clearly was a little more than, than just everybody else, but it was still, you know, these were best buddies from, from school. What really seems to be at issue is that when they got out of school, 
they had nothing to do. These were well-to-do young women. They were not expected to go to college. They were not expected to go get a job. They were expected to wait around until they found a husband. Hmm. That was kind of what they were expected to do. So what seems to be kind of at, at part of the root of this whole situation that came up was that nobody had anything to do. But then another part of it was that it seems as though Alice, from what I can read, probably really was a lesbian, Mm -hmm. but she didn't really know what that was. Mm -hmm. She didn't know that there were other people who had feelings like she did. Mm -hmm. Um, she, She kind of felt like she was unique in this. But then it also seemed like, at times, that Frida returned her feelings. So here's what happened. Um, They were obviously the best of friends, very close, however that was. And then they they realized that if they got married to, you know, men out there or wherever, they would be separated. Mm -hmm. They would probably go live two different places. Mm -hmm. They would have their own families to raise, their, their own children. Um, Alice, if she didn't get married, she had siblings. Her father was a, um, she would, she would be at home taking care of her siblings' children, helping rear them, taking care of her, her parents' house, all that. And she just didn't want to be separated. So Alice and Frida, probably more Alice than Frida, came up with the scheme that Alice was going to dress as a man she and Frida were going to get married and then move to St. Louis and live as husband and wife. Mm -hmm. Alice was going to get a job and support them, and they would live happily ever after. Wow. So for Alice, this was a way to ensure that she and Frida got to spend the rest of their lives together. Um, she was going to, she came up with his name, Alvin J. Ward, which is interesting because Ward is Frida's mm-hmm. last name already, so that was kind of weird, but they were going to be Mr. and Mrs. Alvin J. Ward, and um, so they were making all these plans, and apparently Frida, who was an ex- aspiring actress, what she really got into was helping um, Alice dress as a man, because this was like, you know, stage costume kind mm-hmm. of stuff for her. So that was what most excited her about the whole thing was mm-hmm. helping Alice become this whole new character. Um, so this was in January of 1891 when Alice proposed to Frida in a letter. She sent her a letter telling her this kind of the plan and, and here's what I think we should do. Frida responded immediately and said, yes, that sounds wonderful to me. Then Alice wrote her another letter and said, I want to make sure that you really mean this and that you really understand this because she was trying to make sure that Frida really understood this because Frida had already been kind of wishy-washy out there. She wasn't sure that, that Frida felt the same way she did about their relationship. Um, Frida kind of was a, a little a little flirty with men. Um, she had been dating these two men. Who knows you know, where that was all going. But um, anyway, so second letter 
Frida writes back and says, yes, yes, I want to do this. Alice writes her a third time and says, I'm going to give you one more chance to back out of this. But at this point, if you say yes, if you break an engagement, I will have to kill you. Oh. So. At least she was up front. I guess. Frida, yeah. says, <laughs> Frida says, yes, I really, really want to do this. I love you. So they start making their plans. And this is when Frida gets all into it because she's doing the costuming stuff. And um, in June, um, Alice buys a, an engagement ring and has it inscribed from A to F and sends it off to Frida. Well, sometime along in, in this time, um, they both were, were living in Memphis, and um, Frida's family moved up the river to Gold Dust, Tennessee. So they were a little ways away from each other, didn't see each other regularly, but when um, Frida came to town, she would stay at her aunt's house, and then, of course, you know, she would sometimes stay over at Alice's house because they were best friends, and everybody knew that Alice's behavior was appropriate because she didn't dress inappropriately, and she wasn't flirting with men, which were the criteria, mm-hmm. I guess, for appropriate <laughs> behavior at the time. Um, so it was all good. So um, then they had made their plans to, I think there was a date in early November that they had decided on that... Frida was going to be in town. She would run away. Um, Alice would come get her. They would meet. They would go to Frida's family church in Memphis, to Grace Episcopal Church, ask their pastor there that she had known all her life to marry them, telling him that this was a man, mm-hmm. Alvin J. Ward, that Frida was going to marry, not even thinking that their pastor would wonder, where's your family? Why are they not here? Why are you not having a big wedding? But then if something happened, they had a backup plan that they would go to the Justice of the Peace and whatever. But they re- she really wanted to have the wedding at the, at the church because, you know, be more of a production, right? Mm-hmm. So they had this plan and they had a date set and um, Frida was going to sneak out of the house and go meet Alice and they were going to get married, go to St. Louis and have, be established before anybody even realized what was going on and no one would ever find them because surely they wouldn't be looking for Alvin J. Ward. Well, it was about this time that Frida's older sister, Ada, who was married and whose house that she and uh, that Frida and her father were living in, in gold dust, happened to read some of the letters that she'd been exchanging with Alice and found out what they were doing. Well, of course, two women running off to get married made no sense to anyone whatsoever. So um, Ada's husband, William, said, oh, there's got to be a man behind this. There's got to be a man somewhere. And Alice is just covering for him. And he's really the one that Frida's going to go run off and marry. But we're not going to have that. So Right. Because that was, that yeah. was just as much of a scandal. Well, yeah. she ran off and... Well, yeah. <laughs> so um, immediately, the big sister, Ada, sent, a, sent off a letter with the engagement ring and however many dollars and cents that, that Frida's wedding dress had cost and then something else to Alice. And then she also sent a letter to Alice's mother saying, 
here's what's going on. This is what happened. And obviously you need to take care of it because this was a, this was a daughter. So obviously it was the mother Mm -hmm. who had, who had not been a good mother who had caused this problem and she needed to fix it. What they weren't going to call the, they weren't calling police or anything like that. There Mm -hmm. wasn't a crime. They weren't calling dad or writing a letter to dad. They were writing the letter to mom. So her mother got this letter and her mother just couldn't believe that this could possibly be true. So she just thought, oh, there must be something going on here, but I don't know what it is. But that freedom must be causing trouble. So the upshot of this whole thing was Alice and Frida were told they couldn't meet, talk to each other, or correspond anymore, ever. So after this happened, um, Alice sort of shut herself in a room and didn't do anything. She would mope around. If she came out of her room, she would go directly to the kitchen, pull out this locked box, and in the box was the last letter from Frida, an engagement ring, and a photograph she had of Frida, the one last remaining photograph. And she would look through her things, and she kind of shared part of the story with the cook, Lucy. But, of course, she couldn't tell her the whole story because that was not acceptable. So, but, you know, a couple of times over, there was three or four months went on when this was all happening, and um, she would, she a couple of times signed for a delivery, and she would sign Frida Ward instead of Alice Mitchell. And she she said later, I, I didn't realize I had done that. I must have just been thinking about Frida and just couldn't go on. Hmm. So... Anyway, um, so what happened is about the time, okay, I've got my timeline wrong. They were going to get married in, the, in August, sorry, not November, August. So a few months later, it was the 1st of November, while Alice had decided she'd been hearing rumors that um, Frida obviously had just rolled over when her sister said, you can't see Alice anymore. She said, okay, wasn't a big deal for her. She'd been seeing a couple of men. There's one man who was a post office, postal delivery guy, and obviously she was about to marry him. So she started causing trouble and writing letters to him saying, oh, I'm really a nice person and you should see me and you should visit with me and you should date me. And she signed some fake name and, you know, trying to get him to leave, leave Alice, I mean, leave Frida, leave well, Frida and alone. And in this time period, it was yeah. all letters. It was all letters. Yes. Like, right. Really. So, it, it, so this it, was like some ancient catfishing. Yeah. I'm loving, well, yeah, this manipulation. So, so one yeah. of the, yeah, one of the interesting things is that, is that um, they used a lot of, of names for each other, like, like some of them were fake names but some of them were pet names and so it's kind of hard when I'm reading when I was reading some of the letters to tell who was really writing Mm -hmm. and who they were writing to and I had to look back and see who is this again because this is not a name I've seen before anyway so Frida looked like was about to marry this uh, this guy and Alice decided that could not stand, that if she couldn't have Frida, nobody was going to have Frida. She thought about buying pistols and going and killing the postman. 
but the pistols were all too heavy for her, and she didn't have time to go shopping further, so she didn't buy pistols. But about the 1st of November, she swiped her father's razor, straight razor, and just started carrying it in her pocket all the time so that whenever, by this time she decided that Alice was, I mean, that Frida was the one who had to go. So if she ever ran across Frida in town again, that was going to be it. She'd be ready. Yeah, she'd be ready. So she found out that Frida was coming into town um, in about mid-January. This was January of 1892, staying with her, her aunt. And she kept trying to, to get her to agree to see her, but her letters kept coming back, which, you know, unopened, returned to sender. And at first it was somebody else's handwriting, but eventually it was Frida's handwriting saying return to sender. So, you know, she was really starting to believe that, mm-hmm. okay, maybe, maybe Frida really doesn't want to see me. After all this time, she's finally getting that. So, eventually, she decides that she's just going to have to to track down Frida when she's on her way to the steamship that'll take her back up the river to Gold Dust. She's returning home. She's headed out that way. It's been really, really cold, and they've had an ice storm. So, there's been a few days when the, the steamers weren't running. So, she knew this day... It's a little bit warmer, it's clear, there's not a blizzard, they're going to run today. So she kept a watch. And she um, asked her friend Lily to come for just a, a wagon ride with her out to, you know, to the post office, let's ride to the park, whatever. Well, Lily was taking care of her five-year-old nephew that day, and she said, oh, that'd be a great outing for him. So she and her five-year-old nephew climbed in the wagon with, with Alice with the straight razor in her pocket. And um, they ended up going by the aunt's house just as Frida and her sister Joe and her friend Christina came walking out of the house to head to the steamer. They walked to the steamer, but it was kind of icy, so they were having trouble a little bit. So Alice was able to get a little ahead of them, got to the, the wherever the, the steamships port. were. The or, port. Thank yeah. you. That would be it. Um <laughs> And got there a little bit ahead of them, and she said to, to Lily and her nephew, hang on a minute, I'm going to go say goodbye to Frida. And so she got down, it was a little ways over to wherever they were, she met them, she walked right up to Frida and leaned in like she was going to give her a kiss on the cheek or something, and sliced her throat oh. with the razor. Didn't kill her, but her sister, Joe saw this happen, she had an umbrella in her hand, and she starts beating Alice with the umbrella. So Alice turns around and slices her cheekbone with the razor. By this time, Frida has been able to get back up from falling, starts running toward the steamer, thinking, if I can get on the steamer, I'm all good. Alice catches her, grabs her, cuts her throat ear to ear, kills her. Right there, like, in public, in front of all these people, her sister, her friend saw it all. Wow. And then Alice ran back to her wagon. Her friend, they were parked in such a way that she couldn't see what had happened. Mm-hmm. But Alice comes running back with blood on her clothes. Lily says to her, Alice, what have you done? And she says, I just killed Frida. And Lily said, 
ah, I don't know what to do. I think you should go home and tell your mother what you've done. So this is the situation. And along the, there have been some, there were some really interesting things said along the way. So when, when Joe, the sister, was beating her with the umbrella, she says, I don't care if I'm hanged. I just can't let her get away. Um, after she, she slices the throat, Frida's lying there, lifeblood pouring out of her. And, and the sister says, Alice, you dirty dog. <laughs> so, okay, there was some comic relief in there. All right, so anyway, it, it was just, just nuts. So Alice goes back, to, back home. She drops off Lily and her nephew at home and goes home and tells her mother what she's done. Her mother tells her father, and her father, who was a, a retired salesman, pretty well off, goes and hires the two best lawyers in Memphis and tells them that the defense will be that clearly his daughter is insane. Not because she killed this young woman with a straight razor, but because she was planning to have married her. So, yeah, that's, that's what this is all about. Um, so, Alice is never tried for murder. What happens is that she is sub subjected to an inquisition of lunacy, nice. which is not the same thing as a murder trial, but it sure looked a lot like a murder trial. Mm -hmm. But, so here's her defense. The only way that it could explain that Alice insisted she had to kill Frida because she loved her and couldn't stand the idea of anyone else having her, and of course they were planning to have been married, is that she's insane. The lawyers made up a definition of a term that had been used, but not with this definition. The term is erotomania. <laughs> Yeah, so the actual definition that had been used of this term before was an intense, morbid obsession with someone, but not of a sexual nature. So what it was used for here was the perverted affection of two people of the same gender, or of, of one person for someone else of the same mm -hmm. sex. So Alice's written statement that she made after she was arrested included these words, I resolved to kill Frida because I loved her so much that I wanted her to die loving me. And now I know she is happy. Really? <laughs> yeah. Wow. So Alice's friend Lily was arrested as an accomplice because she was there in the wagon Surely she knew what was happening. Mm -hmm. Well, and she didn't call the police. She told her to go home to mom. But, but okay. The, yes, that's exactly what the police said, is you should have reported this to the mm -hmm. police immediately or had her drive, to, you know, and turn herself in or something. That should have been your advice. But then I thought, these are two young women yeah. who, ha who are so sheltered. Mm -hmm. They went to a girls' school for well-to-do Memphian young women. Mm -hmm. The only people they know are this little circle of friends. Mm -hmm. the, the neighbors are all wealthy people, too. 
They don't have any responsibilities as outside their home. They don't have any anything to do. That this is all mm-hmm. they know to do. I think you should go home and tell your mother what you've done. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that was the best advice she had for yeah. her. Yeah, and when the whole thing happened, you know where they were found out. Mm-hmm. What was the course of action? I'm going to tell your mom. Exactly. Like, exactly. There wasn't anywhere else to go. Right. <laughs> Who do you go tell this stuff to, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So, Frida's funeral, three days later, was this giant public spectacle because immediately the newspapers started throwing out stuff about unnatural love and, you know, all this kind of stuff. Um, the funeral was at... Frida's Church, Grace Episcopal Church, where they planned to get married. Officiating was their pastor, who they had, had wanted to marry them. She was she was buried there at Elmwood Cemetery, um, and the court hearings began just a few days later on February first. Um, so here's an interesting thing: the judge in the case. Let me find it. Uh, Weird thing, weird thing. Um, his name was Dubose, and he was actually a member of the Tennessee KKK during the time that Alice was in prison, either awaiting trial or during her trial. I can't remember which. There were three black men who had been arrested, um, and it was a whole thing about about who was allowed to open businesses in Memphis. And there was a a group of um, African-American men who had decided that in their neighborhood, they should be allowed to open their own businesses. And so these three men had opened a grocery store. And they had been arrested because a bunch of white men, probably the KKK members, had come in and started a riot in their store and they had defended themselves. Mm-hmm. So these three African-American men were the ones arrested. Mm. And while Alice was in prison, next in, in the jail, next to them, a group came along, dragged them out of jail, and lynched them. So this was the whole kind of inciting incident that got Ida B. Wells, the African-American social activist, started writing about all this kind of thing. This was mm-hmm. the first story she wrote about. So it was kind of just an interesting aside that this was happening in Memphis while this this whole situation with Alice and Frida was going so on. Many different oh, social injustices. Yes. Going a lot on of things going on in Memphis. Yeah. Thank you, Memphis. Okay, mm-hmm. so the judge's name was Julius Dubose. He was son of a wealthy planter and an early leader in the Tennessee Ku Klux Klan. He had a background in journalism. He was a newspaper owner, but then he had been, um, he was elected to the criminal court. And he was actually impeached the next year, but um, he was also convicted twice of various, you know, corruption and legal things, but then eventually he was he was restored to being a judge. So that was kind of weird. But okay. So anyway, at the time, um, technically only white men were allowed to attend court. But 
because this was women at, you know, at the center of this whole case, the judge agreed to allow women to come into the courtroom, but they, there was one side for the men to sit on, one side for the women to sit on. And um, every once in a while during the testimony, somebody would say to either the, the lawyers asking questions or to the judge, or the judge would say, now remember the lady's sensitivities here. So as you ask your questions, keep that in mind and let's not, let's not upset these women who are here. Um, and this was all, this was all kind of a matter of these shady, you know, court dealings going on in Shelby County, Tennessee at the time, because theoretically this was, you know, after the civil war, after reconstruction. Mm -hmm. So, all citizens, probably still at this time men, but all citizens should have been allowed in, but no, mm -hmm. they weren't. Um, so, of course, the, the jury was all white men. So one of the things we found out related to Lily. Lily, as I said, was arrested as an accomplice, and it and she really didn't know. She was kind you know, she was very naive. She kind of just was there. She knew that Alice was really obsessed with Frida. She didn't understand anything about that. She didn't know the extent mm -hmm. to which Alice was obsessed with Frida. Well, and wouldn't it have seemed like she just broke off the friendship suddenly? Right. Well, and that's because the other thing. Her, because um, no one else Frida's sister, Joe, who had been Lily's best friend, mm -hmm. when this all happened to split up Alice and Frida, Joe had broken it off with Lily because Lily was a good friend of, of Alice. And she had no idea why. She mm -hmm. just was completely confused about it, just didn't understand why Joe wasn't her friend anymore. Mm -hmm. I mean, she wasn't that close to Frida, I think, so, but but just didn't understand what this yeah, was all about. Suddenly, and nobody would tell her. Yeah. So, but this was still, you know, she was still Alice's friend, and she'd ride around with her, and she knew that they drove by the aunt's house almost every time just to mm -hmm. see if we was there. ancient drive-bys. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sweet. So, <laughs> apparently one of the things that was all the rage about this time was that single young men would place matrimonial ads in the newspaper. And in fact, there were some places like San Francisco was a big enough city. There were entire newspapers that were, there was one called the Matrimonial News. And it was entirely <laughs> an ad looking for, looking for, a, well, it's, it's kind of hard to tell because I didn't look at to see what these <laughs> said, whether they were saying, I'm looking for a wife, or whether they just said, I'm looking for somebody to write to me or to, you know. Yeah, to, well, this could lead somewhere. To, yeah. Ooh, ancient so, dating apps. There you oh go. God. That's right. That's right. That's exactly what I was thinking of. So all these girls at Miss Higby's, the Higby School for Young Ladies, had answered some of these ads. But this all came back to to the detriment of Lily, because she was pointed out as being fast and loose because she had written some of these letters to some of these young men, and nice young ladies didn't hang out at the post office waiting for responses from these young men. They didn't know. But everybody else was But everybody did it. it. Um, hmm. So this was kind of where the, where the, um, the prosecutors got 
their dirt on Lily, that she wasn't this nice young lady with a delicate constitution like she was pretending to be. But she really was, it turns mm-hmm. out. So eventually, she was, you know, she was let set free and and exonerated of, you know, being an accomplice and all this. But in the meantime, she had spent a few days at least in the same cell with Alice, and so that didn't look good either, you know, because we know <laughs> about Alice. So, but it. She didn't have a choice. Right, exactly. (laughs) There were two jail cells and the three African-American men were in the other one. So, yeah, she did not. She didn't. Even if she had said, I didn't didn't have a choice of where she was placed. But because she was in the same jail with Alice, then obviously we know that there must be something going on. But we we don't get that. So, so. Here, here are the, the things that, um, the, um, defense said should lead the the jury to make the the designation that she is truly insane these are the characteristics that prove insanity in alice's case she was of poor health so apparently when she was younger she'd had some ongoing health issues and so she she wasn't strong and of good constitution bizarre conduct apparently um the when she was young, she was a tomboy. So there are two things that sort of fall in this bizarre conduct and unfeminine behavior. So I'm not sure which of these falls into which of those two categories. Mm-hmm. But when she was little, she was a tomboy. She didn't like playing with dolls and with her older sisters. She had two sisters who were quite a bit older and a younger brother or a young brother just older, but near her age. So she played with her brother outside. She played mm-hmm. baseball. She was apparently pretty good at it. Um, things like that. She didn't like to sew or do needlework at all. She didn't much like to read. She liked to be outside doing masculine things. So masculine interests was another of these. Improper attachments. So I think that had to do with the wanting to marry a girl. And then the role of hereditary influence. Now this is an interesting one. Because apparently the whole, there was an actual diagnosis of feminine hysteria Interesting. And her mother <laughs> had been diagnosed as having feminine hysteria. Those two words together make me very angry. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. she said, I'm just like, mm. So. It makes me just want to run and scream. <laughs> <laughs> you want to see feminine hysteria? Right. I'll show you feminine hysteria. <laughs> <Yeah>. Really? <laughs> uh, so Alice's mother, Isabel, had had seven children. Only four of them lived very long at all like one of them died within just a couple of weeks the other two I'm not sure how long they lived but over the period of having seven children there were three times when after having the baby she showed signs of what they called melancholia which probably was postpartum depression is what Mm -hmm. we would call it now Mm -hmm. but because she showed these signs of you know not being interested in the baby or not feeling well you know not being up and you know wanting to take care of her family and whatever her husband decided she should go in an insane asylum till she got better three different times this happened she would go in the insane asylum she would go through treatment but after a few weeks or a month, she would come back. And it was during one of those periods when one of the babies died 
obviously, because it didn't have a mother to take mm-hmm. care of it. Mm-hmm. But she came back to find that her baby was, was dead and gone. Wow. But so now the defense is pointing back to that to say this is obviously a genetic defect. Hmm. This young lady, Alice, has feminine hysteria because, of course, her mother had feminine hysteria. So apparently, as part of the stuff that Alice had going on, she had frequent nosebleeds. And her defense that they found a doctor who called that vicarious menstruation. (laughs) (laughs) And so she would just, I mean, it was just this crazy list of stuff. So there is this whole list of things. She's not not feminine at all. No. But she has extra. But there's a lot of menstruation going on. (laughs) That it's coming out her face. (laughs) Yeah. Pick one, guys. Pick one. <laughs> so apparently, here they they got three doctors who um, made a list of the things that decided she had a hereditary disposition to insanity. <laughs> she is undeveloped mentally. Her conversation is that of a person much younger than she is. This is a good one. There's a lack of symmetry in the facial conformation. Oh. So obviously she's insane. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. Uh, Where's that? All right. Just <laughs> yeah. she's Present, like, presently, everybody in the room is yeah. checking the symmetry of their face. <laughs> like, what? Since you can't see what's going yes. on. She is of a nervous temperament. Her love was such as the passion a beast feels for its offspring. I'm I'm not really sure what, what? that. Yeah. Means. I was like, oh. So, like, when she attacked her, that she was, like, uh, protecting her young kind of thing. But she killed the person she loved, so I don't... Well, know. you know, the Black Widow... Hmm. ...kills... Okay. ...the male. All right. <laughs> All right, stop talking. No, I'm, I'm <laughs> just trying to think through that. Is it like when humans touch a wild animal and suddenly the mom's like, uh, no, Maybe, maybe. I don't know. What do you mean by that? I mean, that, that's, that's it. There's no explanation of what they meant by that. Okay, she's the victim nothing. of erotomania, a subdivision of simple insanity. She is left-handed. Oh, my, oh my gosh. That is, man. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Crazy. She is the last child born to an insane mother. Extra crazy. Because she had seven but, kids. Yeah. So, right. She was eccentric in youth. At puberty, she displayed symptoms of excitability. She has always found boys more congenial as playmates than girls. She was the victim of an insane but an imperative delusion. She was vacillating. I don't know where that comes from because she was pretty sharply focused on one thing, Mm -hmm. I think, here. I don't know. I don't know. She became maniacal. She is of low-grade intelligence. That would go back with undeveloped mentally. There is a vacuity in her conversation. She intended to commit suicide but forgot. (laughs) (laughs) She totally forgot. (laughs) So so here's something I forgot to mention. (laughs) I'm the one who forgot. So obviously I'm on this list, too. Um, So... In December, before she proposed to 
Frida. Um, Frida had been telling her about these two men that she was either writing to or seeing or talking to down the street or I don't know what. But, but that's the point at which Alice had decided that obviously Frida didn't love her as much as she loved Frida, which I think is the reason she made her say yes three times mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. the proposal. But so anyway, Frida was staying over at Alice's house one night and Frida was asleep and Alice decided that she was going to go get a bottle of laudanum, pour alcohol, like drinking alcohol, mm-hmm. I guess, into mm-hmm. it, and that either she was going to force it down Frida's throat or she was going to drink it herself. She hadn't decided which. Mm-hmm. So she just lay there all night holding this bottle, staring at Frida. And when Frida woke up, she saw Alice staring at her, holding this bottle. <laughs> and she told her what it was. <laughs> and she told her what she was planning. But she still hadn't decided which of them was going to die. And so Frida was leaving to get on the steamer that day. So Alice followed her, followed her into her stateroom on the steamer, locked the door, and then drank it all. Obviously, she didn't die. Mm-hmm. But the book says it would have been really uncomfortable because <laughs> there's all kinds of digestive things yeah. that happen. Yeah. And, you know, you're it just anyway, apparently she got medical help and she was OK. But already at that point, she is crazy obsessive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Controlling. But she didn't forget. Jealous. <laughs> no, she didn't. But then. When she was going to buy the pistol to shoot Ashley, the postman, Uh she was also thinking about shooting herself, killing herself. But then when she didn't, the pistols were all too heavy and she didn't have time that day to go shopping further, she never went back and bought a pistol to either shoot him or shoot herself. I don't know if that's what they mean, Mm -hmm. but maybe. Did she maybe have, because I mean, she had a plan to go and... Mm-hmm. intercept Frida before she got into the right. steamer and kill Frida did suicide fall into her plan and then she just didn't do it I don't know I don't know I would think if she were gonna do that she would just do it right there and and die next to Frida you know like well, Romeo and Juliet sort of thing yeah but she was in a very public place they would have didn't seem to bother well her. not the killing part but she the, said i don't care if i'm hung but maybe but i'm thinking that they would have stopped her from trying to kill herself nobody stopped her from doing anything she ran back and got in the wagon and went home well maybe it was so or she just on. changed her mind after she killed frida and was like well that was messy i've done it I don't want to die. Yeah, I'm I, yeah maybe so. Maybe I'm good. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it's all I needed to do. <laughs> Going home. I feel so much better. <laughs> so anyway, there's that long list of, of characteristics, you know, that just make her out to be just this... We, some of them are weird. Some of them are yeah. hilarious. Yeah. Some of them are just so strange. Anyway, as it all turns out, she is declared insane after these doctor experts testify that all these things are true and it, therefore she is, she is insane and was at the time of the murder. She was committed to the Western Hospital for the Insane on August 1st. So all this happened, this was February, January 25th, I guess, 
seven months or so. Um, and while she was there, apparently this was kind of a place like you were talking about, about the, the nice prison in mm-hmm. New Zealand that she was, she was, you know, they had private rooms and with bathrooms attached, which was not normal in the 1890s. Mm-hmm. Um, she learned to do needlepoint and embroidery, and she even took up reading. <laughs> so she was a model of feminine behavior. Yeah. Which she didn't like to begin with. Right, right. Wow. And she then didn't have an opportunity. To she died yeah. in 1898, so she'd been there not quite six years. Um, this was another one of those cases where she was she was there until she was declared cured, mm-hmm. but she was expected to be an incurable. Nobody expected her to get better mm-hmm. because of all these things. Um, but what they were trying to cure was not violence or obsession. It was to cure her lesbianism, mm-hmm. which, of course, was not the term they were using because that right. didn't really come in until right. 30, 40 years later. But that's what they were expecting to cure. Mm-hmm. But couldn't. So nobody knows quite how she died. There are differing stories about that. She might have had tuberculosis. She might have starved herself and then died of a, I don't know, whatever you die of when you starve. I'm not sure. A heart attack? I don't know what you die of when you starve. <laughs> Starvation? <But> she <laughs> might <laughs> have, have died by suicide by jumping into a water tank that was on top of the building. So if that were what she did, I don't know how... You didn't know, but it's not that they didn't yeah. know, no, it's that know. nobody kept records and nobody told. Well, yeah. and, and if she had committed suicide and by that way, that would certain, have looked really bad. Yeah, it, no kidding. So <laughs> yeah. the asylum clearly, you know, just, just kept like, it. Oh, I don't know how she died. <laughs> so yeah. she wasn't very old. No. So, no, so here's, here's the thing. When, when they died, um, I mean, when, when Frida died, Alice was 19 and Frida was 17. Oh. Yeah. So that was when she murdered Frida. Mm-hmm. Frida was 17, Alice was 19. Mm. So she was 25 years old Wow! when she died. It's very interesting. I really think that Alice probably truly was a lesbian, mm-hmm. but I don't think Frida was. I think Frida was just a flighty little girl who said, sure, mm-hmm. let's do this, let's try that, let's do whatever, whatever you want. And, um. you know, she would just kind of go along with whoever and whatever that was kind of my impression of her, that she was flighty and mm-hmm. like whatever. Like attention. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or maybe so, didn't know how to say no. Well, maybe. But I got the impression that she was perfectly... I mean, there were places where... There was one place where um, she wrote to Frida and said, you know, unless you've told somebody, nobody else but our families know about all that little business last summer when they were engaged to be married. Mm-hmm. Oh. Nobody else knows about all that little business. So we don't need to worry about that. We don't need to talk about that anymore. Hmm. But then there was, I don't know, Alice's father who was controlling and mm-hmm. told, the, told the lawyers what, their, what her defense should be. So I really, uh, one of the things about this book that the author talks a lot about is the illustrations that are throughout it. They are, they're line drawings all the way through. And to me, that makes this book look amateurish. It would be so much more 
meaningful and so much more impressive. I understand some of the drawings are like, this is what the scene would have looked like. And I realize there are no photographs of those scenes. Mm -hmm. But then there are line drawings of what could be artifacts. Um, And I don't know why she couldn't give us actual photographs of like these places or this, you know, the cemetery or, you know, things like that. It just... I don't know, it, it, it took away from mm-hmm. the seriousness of the book, I thought. Um, so really, I think this book is Romeo and Juliet, teen angst with twists along the way. Not I my personally book love ever. the drawings. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I do. I'm like, oh my God, look at these drawings. They're amazing. It would have been really cool if they had done the drawings or something, you know? <laughs> yeah, but I there, just but thought... This looks to me like they're trying to make this um, appeal to teens, mm-hmm. maybe. Is it a YA? No, it's really not. But I think it could have that appeal. Mm-hmm. But the cover is hot pink. and Yeah, yeah. the cover is hot pink. And I don't know. It just, I don't know. I think there would, there could be very well, could be that appeal, but. I was not impressed with these drawings that, <laughs> that the author went on and on about the talented illustrator <laughs> she had. So, oh well. That's it. Wow. Right. Alice yeah. has Frida forever. Well, I find it just very interesting because we do not talk about the books Mm-mm. that we're choosing. We just yeah, choose yeah, them. Yeah, we just choose them. And then we show up and we're like, what did you read? Yeah. <laughs> so that we all chose mm-hmm. teenage killer books. Yeah. And... And the, then the similarities mm-hmm. with between ours, yeah. yeah, and yours and Pat's with the um, well, really even the whole uh, um, lesbian thing because mm-hmm. throughout my book, mm-hmm. uh, Ricky Chavez keeps saying that he's gay, and then eventually comes out that he's gay, and then he tries to tell uh, Alex that he's gay, and it's like we're gay. And so it's just like... Oh, my goodness. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of a... That's even a theme in the the books. Even though his mm-hmm. is a little more twisted because it's well, molesting I, a boy. Yeah, I think his is more of a, I'm going to continue to manipulate you. Yeah. Yes. And not... I think ours, at least the way I felt about mine and the whole Juliet and Pauline thing is... If this hadn't have been such a huge, like, oh, you can't like other girls, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, would they have just had a normal relationship or would they have at some point just been like, well, this is, you're not the one for me. Yeah. Because right. they never married. Mm-hmm. Neither one mm-hmm. of them ever married. Mm-hmm. They had long-term female companions, mm-hmm. you know, and still they cannot... Anne Perry was still will not be like, I am a lesbian. Yeah. Yeah. So like, yeah. Love who you love, you know? And, and I think that's one of the biggest tragedies of both of ours. Yeah. Is that because it was so shameful. Mm-hmm. Like, but it, it really is a, a testament to the times. And yeah. I noticed that there's uh, just that, Somebody came in the other day and they were worried about coming in because of how they were dressed. They were like, I, 
I'm not made up. <laughs> and so it was the older generation where somebody, that's what they did. Mm-hmm. You don't just mm-hmm. throw on some clothes and go out into public. You make your face up and you get your mm-hmm. hair done and you get all dressed up. And um, mm-hmm. so there's, it's just that mentality of what's. Well, it- and I think, I think I said this to Pat, you know, so much has changed, mm-hmm. but there is still so much that is the same. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's terrible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that came up in, in my book was um, one of the newspaper accounts after um, Alice was arrested was um, she must have been reading all those French novels about women and women. But really in Memphis, as a sheltered young lady, she probably couldn't. Uh-huh. But it might have been good if she had, because then she would have realized mm-hmm. she wasn't alone. Yeah, She wasn't the only young woman out here who had feelings like that mm-hmm. for another woman. Yeah. So and then if Frida didn't want to be with yeah, her, maybe she there was find- somebody else. Yeah. Because I really think that she thought Frida was the only person mm-hmm. who would reciprocate her feelings. Yeah. Well, and how would you, they were so close. I mean, how would you find somebody that was that same orientation? You certainly couldn't talk to any. I mean, that's the whole whole thing is she couldn't talk to anybody Mm -hmm. about it. So, how would she ever find another person Mm -hmm. who felt that way? And and that kind of came up in in my book, too, only it was kind of the opposite Mm -hmm. that because of this story, and because it was so publicized that other, I think they mentioned an an author when she was young and she wrote, was reading about uh, Juliet and Pauline in the newspaper. It was like, holy moly, there are other girls out there that feel the way I feel. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. I mean... Mm-hmm. Yes, this horrible thing happened. Right. But she wasn't alone in the way that she felt. Yeah. Yeah. And so. Yeah. Well, it was it was interesting to me, too, that for mine, at the time, this story went nationwide. You know, it was the headline on all the newspapers in the big cities across the country. But then... After Frida was declared, I mean, after Alice was declared insane and put in the asylum, it all kind of died away. And by the time this author was doing her research in the the early 2010s, nobody in Memphis knew anything about this story. Hmm. So, you know, there's a whole lot of history in Memphis about mm-hmm. the justice system and, you know, all those things that we that we mentioned but nobody remembered this story, even though at the time it was huge. Mm-hmm. But it was such a scandal and such so out of the norm that it, it didn't remain part of the history of Memphis. It was just, just yeah. out of there. Yeah. Because that's been a long time. 130 mm-hmm. years? 100, yeah, almost 30. Almost. 20 something. Sixty years later, in New Zealand, two girls mm-hmm. are going through the very similar, similar things. Except mm-hmm. that they killed someone else because they mm-hmm. didn't want to be separated. A lot of things have changed. A lot mm-hmm. of things have stayed the same. <laughs> At least no one's accusing us of vicarious menstruation. <laughs> <laughs> My gosh. 
That cracks me up. It's just a nosebleed. <laughs> <laughs> but that. people still say dumb things like that. Oh, yeah. yeah. Just, they just don't say that anymore. But <laughs> yes, yes. But you still hear people say oh, yeah. stuff. Yeah. Like, yeah. Okay. All right. This has been Do We Like Murder? A segment of the Long Overdue Podcast and a production of the Decatur Public Library. I hope you've enjoyed listening. Tune in again in a month. Yay. <laughs> Bye.